It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Wait a minute. What's that sound I hear? What? I think it's... It's... It is. It's not racism. What does Santa Claus look like? Maybe you think he looks like this. White man, red cheeks, Rudolph, and everything else that played along with the story. But there's a group of guys in Seattle who want to change that. Gabriel Casada is one of them. He grew up loving Christmas, but he did not love sitting on Santa's lap. I would just sometimes not even go sit on Santa's lap. Honestly, I would just sit in the background a little bit. My mom would be like, take a picture with Santa. I'm like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. i just stand by my mom and take a picture with her, but I wouldn't sit on his lap. It wasn't so much that the skin color just made me feel uncomfortable. It was just that I just never seen one that looked anything similar to me. At one point, Casada developed strong doubts. If there ain't different color Santas, there ain't no Santa. Casada still remembers what it felt like to reach that conclusion. You know, it makes you feel, makes you feel like you're not a I don't want to say human being, but it makes you feel like you're not a part of the crowd. I mean, it's Christmas time. When you see Santa, you know this is, this is Christmas. It's Christmas. Casada is an adult now. He has this photographer friend, Keenan Hart. Hart wanted to offer kids a chance to take photos with a different kind of Santa, a black Santa. Santa comes in all colors. He doesn't just have to be white with rosy cheeks. You know, we want some, some that, you know, our, our people can, you know, relate to. You know what I mean? They got together and stuffed Quesada into a red suit. Quesada says it's been liberating to see how kids react. I mean, their their minds are blown. You'll hear it literally out their mouth. Black Santa, Black Santa, like, and it seemed like they're not so afraid. Parents and grandparents bring their kids for a variety of reasons. Ingrid Bell and Amy McCormick brought kids when Black Santa came to the Northwest African American Museum. We want her to know that it's okay that she looks different. You need to be in a community that 
um, reflects who you are to build confidence and know your place in the world. Of course, the kids have their own agenda. Um, I'm going to ask Santa to give me a remote control um, robot. Open eyes on Big Santa, here we go. Parents leave with a photo. Kids leave with a candy cane. But Casada believes he's giving them more than that. He's removing barriers for kids of all colors. I don't want to say it's bigger than Santa, but there's a colored Santa that can be color anybody. We got a colored president now, I mean. Having many different Santas is helpful, too, because it resolves a major logistical problem with the traditional Santa story. That is, how can a single man, however magical, deliver all those presents in one night? Even kids are skeptical about that. One Santa is going to need a fast deer to go all around the world. There's only one rational explanation. There must be lots and lots of Santas, and they all look different. Joshua McNichols, KUOW News. May those days, may your days, may your days be merry and bright. And may all your Christmas Is the season of the office holiday party. Love them or avoid them, but most workplaces do have office celebrations every year, and there are many, many stories of what can happen when you mix work with pleasure, especially if there's brandy in the eggnog and rum in the punch bowl. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on how not to blow it. If you're a fan of the hit show The Office, you may remember one of the most viewed episodes ever. The Christmas party. If I can't throw a good party for my employees, then I'm a terrible boss. With 15 bottles of vodka, Steve Carell, the guy who played the boss character, sets the tone. I want people to cut loose. I want people making out in closets. (laughs) I want people hanging from the ceilings, lampshades on the head. As the antics go from festive to fraught, there's Xeroxing of naked buttocks. And with vodka flowing, group shots. One, two, three. Yeah! Oh, oh, oh. King of the Potty Committee. Now, this is a spoof, an exaggeration. People don't really behave like this or drink like this, right? I put the question to an employment lawyer. Well, you might be surprised. Nigel Wilkinson is a partner with the firm Manat, Phelps & Phillips in Washington, D.C. I do think sometimes employees forget that the office rules apply at an office party. People start drinking, inhibitions fade away, and stuff can happen. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that office parties can lead to a litigious outcome. Wilkinson says the most typical claim is sexual harassment. But the relaxed atmosphere can lead to a racist joke. I am not prejudice. Or an employee can injure themselves or injure somebody else. And you've seen all of these. I have seen all of these. Now, these are extreme cases. Oftentimes, the effect of alcohol on people's behavior is just simply embarrassing. Maurice Schweitzer is a professor at Wharton Business School who studies how alcohol influences negotiations and professional dealings. One of the things alcohol impairs is our ability to recognize our own impairment. So we tend to think that we might be more funny 
more entertained than we actually are. And that's a problem, especially if you annoy your boss or colleagues. So what's the best strategy? Well, therapist Pat Denning says if you have any tendency at all to overdo it, you can do a couple of things before you put on your party shoes. Before you go in there, decide what kind of an impression do you want to make. Do you want to be the life of the party, really? Denning counsels on alcohol-related issues at the Center for Harm Reduction Therapy in the Bay Area. She says the next thing to do is this. Decide how many drinks will be optimal. If you have one glass of wine, are you tipsy or does it take four martinis? And Denning says once you've determined how many drinks you'll allow yourself, stick with it and slow down. Make a pact with yourself or with somebody else that you will take a break before each drink. And try to alternate between glasses of water and alcohol. After all, there is an upside to the festive atmosphere that comes with a little rum punch. Here's Wharton's Maurice Schweitzer again. It's a social ritual. It can bond us together. And being part of the group, just fitting in, he says, can open up new professional opportunities. The way we mix our social lives and our work is essential for how we advance in our work. So as you blend work and play, Schweitzer says the goal is to strike the right balance. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Tonight, the Missouri Attorney General says he has his sights set on changing court rules when it comes to debt collectors. Chris Coster made the announcement during a visit to St. Louis today. He says many debt collectors are buying up old debts. Coster claims many times the debts have passed the statute of limitations. Over the last several years, this has been the biggest complaint he's received at his office. When legitimate debts are owed, they should be paid. And the rules and regulations proposed will not impair the collection of debt that is properly documented and timely pursued. But it is clear that some debt collection companies are co-opting the courts to recover non-existent or questionable debts in our state by skirting ethical and legal obligations. Among the possible changes, Coster wants lawyers and debt collectors to prove in court that their fees are necessary in collecting debts. He claims many of them are, quote, unscrupulous. For years, News 4 has investigated shady tactics used by some debt collectors from abusive language to threats of arrest. I've confronted several debt collectors over their questionable tactics. Whoa, that's a big no-no. In November 2010, Tammy Henshaw was threatened by Rumson Bowling and Associates after she failed to pay for her daughter's funeral. They told me that they was going to dig my daughter up and hang her by a tree. If you didn't pay the bill. Mm -hmm. After our investigation aired, the Federal Trade Commission banned Rumson Bowling from collecting debts and fined them 700 grand. But they weren't the only rule breakers I uncovered. Last year, I met Calvin Williams. He received offensive voicemails from national credit adjusters based in Kansas. I confronted the company because debt collectors aren't allowed to use obscene language. I wanted to see if we could talk to somebody with national credit adjusters Not about today. this lawsuit. Well, with this language here, as you can see, that's pretty racially motivated coming from some of the collectors here. I don't know anything about it. It says I could be arrested for a felony theft. And another big problem. For more than a year, people around St. Louis received letters from Chaz Dirk Lee and Associates threatening to arrest them. 
Threatening arrest is not allowed, so I confronted the guy behind it. Could we talk to you about these letters that you're sending out to people on behalf of your debt collection company? Mm-hmm. Well, they've been, uh, they've been authorized. What's the problem with them? Well, you're threatening arrest. You're telling people they can be prosecuted. What authority do you have to tell people that? Come from my attorney. Who's your attorney? Uh, you don't need to know that. Then there's the companies that offer to collect debt on behalf of businesses, but instead take hefty upfront fees and disappear. What has this company done for you? Nothing. After small mom and pop businesses lost thousands, I traveled to California to confront the debt collector accused of running a sham. It didn't take long to realize financial adjustment solutions was a big joke. One minute you're there, you're doing good, and you feel like, you know, you're going to accomplish stuff, and you're going to be, you know, and then the next minute it's gone. You know, now I'm stuck. The Federal Trade Commission enforces what's known as the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. It prevents debt collectors from being abusive. Now, to see a full list of what debt collectors can do and can't do, visit our website, KMOV.com. But I'll be honest, man, I'm running out of shit to feel. I ain't trying to tell my biz, but I got the blues, and I watch the news like, nigga, what the fuck I'm supposed to tell my kids? So fuck your city ordinance, this is for the flourishing, so hot in her, and that's where the West floors in. We seem to keep them shooting, bring the chorus in, for real. Ferguson, Missouri, drew so much national focus last year after Michael Brown's shooting death and the protests that followed. But then something else drew scrutiny in the cities and towns of St. Louis County, aggressive ticketing. That practice also caught the attention of the Missouri General Assembly, which clamped down on ticket-happy policing. But this new law is having some unintended consequences. And as St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum reports, some of St. Louis County's municipal leaders are fighting back. When the Missouri legislature altered how towns and cities can collect traffic fine revenue, it was supposed to help people like Joaquin Holmes. The St. Louis resident says he's been hassled by municipal police departments around here, many of which garnered a bad reputation for writing lots and lots of tickets. You can see that we don't have any oversight. We don't have any say, and it's really an oppressive system. Missouri lawmakers sought to change that system by curbing the percentage of traffic fine revenue cities could incorporate into their budgets. For St. Louis County cities, the threshold dropped from 30 percent to 12.5 percent, and it dropped from 30 to 20 percent in the rest of the state. The Ferguson unrest magnified the issue, especially after aggressive ticketing was cited as a major source of tension between African-American drivers and law enforcement. The new law won't affect the city of Ferguson that much because traffic fines constitute a relatively low percentage of that town's budget. Instead, it will hurt cities like Cool Valley, a small town with a largely African-American population, and black elected leaders like Viola Murphy. I'm the mayor of this city, and my job is to keep everybody safe. This is not a safe situation. Murphy is concerned that with the new limits, her city won't be able to pay for new sidewalks along a busy street. As we drive through her town, she points out pedestrians with their backs to traffic carrying heavy shopping bags on the shoulder of South Florissant Road. Murphy says that's just too dangerous. It's been cities like mine working desperately to improve our city to become a better place for our citizens. They deserve just as much as anybody else. Cool Valley is one of a dozen predominantly black municipalities challenging the new law in court. 
Normandy Mayor Patrick Green says the new law places harsher traffic fine restrictions on St. Louis County cities than the state's other municipalities, and that's unfair. It's convenient to attack the weakest in the herd. And the African-American community is weakest by tax base. We have not seen one thing that has come up from any of these legislators that said, how are we going to make these communities sustainable? Many fear that African-American-led towns could dissolve. St. Louis University law professor Brendan Rodiger supports aspects of the new law, but he's concerned it lets more affluent and largely white cities in St. Louis County off the hook. I have said all along that there are municipalities in West County that are just as bad as municipalities in North County that using percentage of revenue to measure courts is an absurd measurement. What it really tells you is that a municipality is poor. Yet these type of arguments hold little sway for State Representative Tommy Pearson, who supported the restrictions. He represents a handful of North St. Louis County cities in the Missouri House and argues that his fellow African-American political figures are missing the bigger picture. I don't represent the elected officials. I represent the citizens. And the citizens were put under heavy financial burden with fines of all kinds. As the lawsuit over the traffic fine revenue caps wind through the courts, lawmakers are considering expanding the law to restrict other kinds of municipal violations. And that could spur another battle and more questions about the future of African-American-led towns around St. Louis. For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. Mama says police mistreat black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? A cop who threatened to kill Ferguson protesters and then was fired as a result of that is now testifying that the whole incident ruined his life. Now, uh, authorities are trying to decide whether or not he's going to lose his policing privileges moving forward. And during this case, of course, he and his lawyer testified that he didn't mean to do anything wrong. He just felt threatened by the protesters. Originally, he said that he spotted one protester, a black protester with a handgun, and he was pointing his rifle at that individual. And then later on, he changed his testimony and said, no, 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 I just saw them all charging at me, so I was worried, and that's why I was holding my gun. Now, the video that went viral and the video that put him in question is the one that we're about to show you. Take a quick look at that, and I'll tell you exactly what his testimony was. Put your gun down. Get there. What are you doing? Stop. Pointing it! Put your fucking gun down! Hungry! Stand down! What's his name? I want it! Put that gun away! Sergeant! Sergeant, tell that gun to take that gun away from him! Sergeant! Put your gun down! Get that gun away from him, Sergeant! Sergeant! Take his gun away! All right, so that was a former police lieutenant by the name of Ray Albers. He did not work for the Ferguson Police Department. He worked for a department nearby. And, of course, uh, local authorities and authorities nearby were called in to kind of deal with the protests. And, obviously, he went overboard. So his lawyer is um, saying, hey, you know what, this is a perfect example of taking one person and trying to make an example out of him. There's videos of other police officials doing the same thing, and this is the only cop who faced any consequences for what he did. I don't think that that's a good defense. You shouldn't be pointing your gun at random protesters because you don't like their message. Yeah, my mom told me that was not a good defense when I was seven. But, Mommy, all the other kids were doing it. <laughs> right? So, no, and uh, second of all, not all the cops pointed a gun directly at people's head and said, quote, I will fucking kill you. 
How about right. that? I like the idea that in the aftermath of the Rodney King riots, the, the black guys who pulled Reginald Denny out of the car in a horrible video when they're kicking him. And, uh, if that had been their defense, uh, everybody was kicking white guys. Yeah, you know, everybody was you know, stomping on white yeah. guys. What, what are you talking about? about? Why, are you, why are you coming after me? What are you singling me out for? Yeah, what are you singling me out for? I'm not sure a jury would, uh, not sure a jury would go for that argument. I mean, I don't have much sympathy for this guy. If your yeah. job is to protect and serve, you protect and serve. You don't aim rifles at people. But it is a little bit strange that this guy's going to potentially face a punishment, but Officer Wilson, who actually killed Mike Brown, got off scot-free. Um, but, you know, recently, or not recently, earlier this year, the Justice Department had a report, and they went to Ferguson. I know you're saying he's not part of the Ferguson police force, mm-hmm. but they found that that police force routinely used excessive force against right. African-American residents. And one of the things they also found is, like, apparently the officers there don't even know... Um, the basis for which you can actually arrest a person. Like, you need probable cause. And they were, like, running around arresting people without probable cause There's even. A, there are a lot of small municipalities in this country that, uh, you know, the, the, the standard you have to get past to get hired to be much anything, but certainly police officers, is not what it is. In places where, you know, even like Los Angeles, where it is for whatever it is, whether, whether it works in weeding out the right kind of people, it's rigorous. It's not, we learned, in Ferguson. We not because we, a lot of cops get fired in places and they just go get hired somewhere else, which is this guy is fighting for the right, I presume, among other things, to get to get hired somewhere else. His defense, I like that you mentioned, was that, you know, first that he makes up that it was a, it was a black guy with a gun. I like that he has to say a black guy with a gun. And, th- and then he's like, the whole mob was running to me. Those other cops who didn't have their guns drawn and were like, Larry, <laughs> you know, somehow they weren't quite as threatened by right. the mob. Right, which is you know? why he probably changed his story. Right? right, but I mean, it's a terrible story. Those guys, that guy was like, dude, because here's what you're going to do if we don't if I don't put my hand on your gun, I get the feeling in eight seconds, you'll shoot somebody. Right. You'll pull that trigger. I mean, thank God. You know, I mean, I, I want to praise him because he didn't. But, you know, but uh, anyway, so he got so he got fired from whatever town he was in, but he wants yeah, to. Yeah, so he, he's been fired, and he's hoping that he can continue being a police officer possibly would, somewhere else. But hire, it doesn't seem likely that that's going to happen. A lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people would. Exactly. So I want to give credit to the good cop there, John Wall of the St. Louis County Police Department, who uh, put his yes. uh, hat put the weapon down, said the officers shouldn't raise their rifles on, unless they intend to shoot. He said, look, were we all uh, a little fearful that night? Yes, I mean, there was an unruly crowd, but that's my job as a cop to be in that. Right. right? And and so if you're in any way sympathetic to, to Albers, I don't know why you are, but you should really question the fact that he's clearly lying several times, and you can tell he's lying. He said, I never pointed my rifle at anyone. <laughs> it yeah. appears not only that you did, uh, everybody that's looked at the tape says you did. The witnesses on the scene say you did, and your fellow cops say you did. Yeah, I mean, it's... and then you said uh, he said at one point I did point my rifle at a black man that I thought might be ha- might have a weapon. Right, but and then later he changed the story to no, I was just waving it around generally. <laughs> hey, you're not allowed to wave it around generally. No, that's no, not, you're not. That's not a defense either. Also, like, you don't have to be, you, no one should be, there is no reason to be sympathetic with it. You can be sympathetic to what Officer Wall said. He was nervous. Yeah. He was right. tense. He was scared. That's okay. And the fact that he brought his gun up and didn't fire it gave us an indication, okay, you're not, I don't know that he's the worst guy in the world. He might not be. He didn't pull the trigger. But you shouldn't be a cop. Yeah. That's it. It's just you shouldn't be a cop. You're not going to jail. You just shouldn't be a cop. Yeah. Last quote from him that I thought was interesting. He said, I seen, I seen about a half a dozen black males come out of the east side of the Sam's Meat Market. They all had bandanas wrapped around their face like an outlaw-type bandana. Hmm. Two of them, at least, who came out uh, had Molotov cocktails. The other one had a handgun ready to go.
according to the other witnesses, including the cops, uh, there were no reports of Molotov cocktails. He was no ne nowhere near the Sam's Meat Market when he was pointing that rifle, and so and there were no guns that any other cop saw. Look, I'm sure you know th that th that also sounds like urban legend that went around. Mm -hmm. A bunch of guys with bandanas are at Sam's Meat Market. They got Molotov cocktails and guns, and so he just repeated that mm -hmm. like he'd seen it, but nobody saw it. Please don't point your weapons at people. We just did a story last week. A drunk driver gets in an accident. Uh, the cop instinctively takes out his gun and points it at him. And then he shot and paralyzed him. Now, we don't know if he shot on purpose because the cops are afraid for their lives at all points for understandable and completely non-understandable reasons or if it was an accident. But that's why you don't point a weapon at somebody's head because it could go off. DNA testing has long been seen as the gold standard of forensics, more scientific than fingerprinting, more reliable than eyewitness testimony. But recently, questions about the reliability of DNA evidence have begun to emerge. Here with me, John Butler of the National Institute for Standards and Technology and Danielle Padini, professor of forensic science at George Washington University. Joining us from an NPR studio in New York, Erin Murphy, NYU law professor and author of the new book, Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA. All right, I think Erin Murphy wants to jump in. Yeah, I think there's a lot of assumptions about what the law does and does not allow in this situation. So, for instance, um, you know, an area of interest is this forensic phenotyping, the idea that you would look at a genetic sample for physical traits, maybe like a mugshot of the person, essentially, to come up with a picture of them. So uh, that's looking at what could be deemed somewhat sensitive information. I don't think it's as sensitive as a medical or, you know, other types of behavioral propensities, but it certainly is more than just this kind of useless numbers type of genetic information. And when it comes to crime scene samples, universally in the law it's agreed a crime scene sample is what's called abandoned. It's kind of been forfeited by the criminal, which means there's no real legal regulation of what can be done to that crime scene sample, which is why we have seen in the United States crime labs testing crime scene samples for phonetic traits. There's, you know, a, a North Carolina case recently or, or investigation recently where they put up a, a wanted poster using a genetic mugshot, essentially. And so um, that's a good example where there aren't the laws, I think, on the books people might assume, and that conversation hasn't happened. And I'll just tack on one little piece there. Uh, the same thing's true for the known samples in the database. The legal limit in almost all states is you must test only for identification purposes mm -hmm. or law enforcement purposes. But those terms are not defined. It doesn't say law enforcement purposes or law enforcement identification means only these junky identifiers. It could be knowing what the suspect looks like is a law enforcement identification purpose. John Butler, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, well, one of the things I think is important to realize is there's different levels of DNA uh, that's being tested. And I, I compare it with my math analogy. I have, you know, basic math is when you're doing single source samples that go into a database. They're single source. They're very easy to type. Two plus two equals four. 
when doing sexual assault, you're doing uh, algebraic equations, if you will. And, and then if, when you get to these touch and more complicated evidence where you have this, these statistics and these challenges, you're looking really at calculus. And so that, the challenge that you have is that many times labs are being prepared and trained very well to do algebra and basic math, but they have to really learn how to better do the calculus. We have to prepare proper exams get ready for that kind of thing. So when we talk about DNA, sometimes we lump it all into mm. all tests are equal. They're not. Mm. So we, when we have a complex situation, we do have a calculus situation. Mitch Marzi, what about civil liberties here, and how does that enter into your own calculations? Oh, it's always something you have to consider. If you're doing something, you know, you want to do it in a constitutional and legal manner. So you need to know what the law is, what the case law is around a particular a particular issue. We've already talked about abandoned DNA. Obviously, that's a Fourth Amendment issue. If something's abandoned in a crime scene, there's no expectation of privacy. Those types of issues. What I do as the elected district attorney of Denver when there's case law that comes down around putting in for instance, non-conclusive DNA results. That can be a problem because you don't have a statistic. I need to make sure my lawyers that are trying those cases understand that that's a potential issue where they could get into a problem uh, if they're making improper arguments around DNA, those types of things. So I think in the last week I sent out two emails to my staff, to my lawyers, about being careful around DNA and the legal issues that can come with that when you need a warrant. Those is, it, uh, is it a concern to you, Mitch Morrissey, that uh, apparently these databases have disproportionate numbers of African-American and Hispanic men in them? Well, that's true because of our criminal justice system and the way that the states have decided to populate the DNA databases based on criminal convictions, based on criminal arrests. There's an overrepresentation of people of color in our criminal justice system. Because of that, then the DNA database reflects that. If there had been another approach uh, about how we populated these DNA databases, then that may not have been the case, but that is the case. That's a reality in the in the criminal justice right. system. Aaron, but I you think wanna... the system. I, I think this. I, I think this. The system needs to be used. Right. I mean, the fact that that's there, it, you have to realize it's there. All but right. you also have to realize there's a, ma a huge overrepresentation of victims of violent crime in this country that are people of color. And to not use this database to try to get leads to solve those cases would be an incredible injustice to those people. All right, Aaron. I think, uh, you know, several things. One, race is a critical question for our criminal justice system. Generally, we're seeing that as a social movement now, and it is an important question for the DNA databases in particular. And I'll say several things about that. First, you know, the DNA databases are not, as, as Mitch said, they're not cobbled from abstract, you know, theories. They're cobbled from policies about who has to contribute to them, you know, compulsory rules about convicted offenders, arrestees. And we know that those, those uh, you know, uh, practices don't map on uh, demographically to the rate of even offending. So I don't mean arrest. I, you know, we know that, for instance, in New York we had a huge debate because we know that the people, the number one crime of arrest for a long period of time in New York City was possession of marijuana. That crime is a crime that actually whites commit disproportionately a little bit higher than African Americans, and yet 
overwhelmingly the people arrested for that crime were African Americans. And so I think when you make these policies, you can't sort of assume away the discretion to arrest, the discretion in the criminal justice system to prosecute and convict people. And if you know anything about the criminal justice system, you know that violent crime, rape, murder, and so forth, is a really small fraction. It's a large number of cases, but it's a small fraction of crime in our country, uh, you know, what's in terms of uh, who's arrested and convicted. If you look at felony arrests, for instance, you're not going to see felony arrests. People convicted of felonies are 90 percent rapists and murderers. You're going to see that they're, you know, 10 percent that. And there are huge percentages of drug crimes and, and other kinds of violent crime that have these racial patterns. And so, so I do think our databases reflect that. And reflect that unfairly, in your view, Erin? I think so. I think they, they do, unfortunately, represent Replicate the injustices in our system, the disproportionate uh, representation of certain persons in our system. And then there's a lot of things that flow from that. Then when we use our databases, for instance, to do certain kinds of searches, like familial searches, as are done in, in Colorado, then we're affecting communities of color in a different way than we're affecting uh, white communities, for instance. Or when we talk about um, you know, privacy questions of other kinds of how we're going to use DNA, we're going to be affecting certain racial groups more than others. John Butler is at a concern you as well. Well, I think as Mitch pointed out and Aaron echoed that, it's the criminal justice system in its entirety. And, you know, from a technical standpoint, uh, samples are put in and we don't really know. On the database itself, there's no record of what the race is or the ethnicity of the individuals. It's just a profile. And so from the profile itself, you can't tell the ethnicity of an individual. But how well do lawyers and juries and judges understand the statistics that are associated well, with Well, they DNA? don't. I mean, that's part of the challenge is that we need to, to bridge that gap in communication to help people be able to better understand what this information really is and what it isn't. What are the limits of the technique and, and how it's understood? Daniel, you presented evidence in court. How difficult is it to explain to juries what it all means? It can be very challenging. I think uh, uh, there's an expectation uh, in the jury that DNA can solve everything, the, the, the famous CSI effect. Um, and I don't have anything against CSI. You know, in the span of an episode, I've I've been from being a geek to being really cool. So I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy about that. But at the same time, they created uh, excessive expectations in in juries and investigators and in prosecutors that uh, DNA and other disciplines in forensic science can can solve any kind of crime. So the challenges of explaining these complex scientific concepts to um, a juror that doesn't necessarily have a Ph.D. or, or a college degree are challenging. Uh, it's difficult. Erin, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I just would add uh, these challenges, I think, are becoming more pronounced. You heard reference from John and I think also from Mitch to the use of software now to try and create statistics in these very complex DNA samples. And these software packages are really useful. They're an advance that can be, you know, helpful in creating meaning out of these very difficult samples. But on the flip side, they require a very technical sophistication. They require the analysts to be able to understand exactly what they're putting in, the kind of choices they're making, and how that might affect what they get out. And then when you take it to a jury, you know, essentially you're in a position potentially where you're telling a jury, a machine spit out this number. This number is the single most important and perhaps the only evidence convicted 
asking this person the case, and I can't explain to you how it, how the machine came to that number, including that some of the software companies are not disclosing the way in which their machines create this number. And so you go to court, and the only person in the whole courtroom who knows how that number came to inculpate the defendant is the guy sitting on the stand who's got a for-profit interest in creating inculpatory information, and that's a real problem. As good as I, a book a guy, we're drinking crooked eye. Your resist a pudding pie, you think I won't, but why wouldn't I? I'm a cop. We begin today's show in Baltimore, where a mistrial has been declared in the case of a police officer charged in the death of Freddie Gray. Gray died in April from a spinal injury sustained while being transported in the back of a police van. Gray's family and attorneys say his voice box was crushed and his spine was, quote, 80 percent severed at his neck. Six officers were charged in Freddie Gray's death. Officer William Porter was the first one to go to trial, charged with involuntary manslaughter, second-degree assault, reckless endangerment and misconduct in office. On Wednesday, a judge declared a mistrial after jurors were unable to reach a verdict on any of the charges after three days of deliberation. Attorneys are expected to meet this morning to decide if Officer Porter should be tried again. Gray's death in April sparked large protests in Baltimore. On Wednesday, scores of Baltimore residents took to the streets again to protest the hung jury. At least two people were arrested. Billy Murphy, an attorney for the Gray family, described the mistrial as a temporary bump on the road to justice. The people who say that this is not justice simply don't understand how the system works. Sometimes there are guilty verdicts, sometimes there are not guilty verdicts, and sometimes there are temporary uh, hung juries where no verdict can be reached and the cases are normally tried again. Uh, so this is just a temporary uh, bump on the road to justice. It, it happens. Uh, it's part of how the system works. We're joined right now by two guests who are inside the courtroom Wednesday. Doug Colbert is a professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law. Roberto Alejandro is a reporter with OnBackground.com. Doug, let's begin with you. A hung jury, a mistrial. What does this mean? Well, it means that all 12 jurors could not agree on a verdict for any of the charges. And what's interesting is that some of the pundits continue to see this as a victory for the defendant. I don't see it that way, Amy. I, I attended every single day of the trial. I was there for all of the testimony, and the prosecution presented a very strong case against Freddie Gray. In many ways, he's fortunate that he was not convicted of all of the charges. Um, and the jury continues to ask and consider uh, why Officer Porter left Freddie Gray in such a dangerous uh, situation when he failed to seatbelt him and when he refused to provide him medical care, even though Freddie Gray had asked uh, for care and told him he had difficulty breathing. Uh, so I think one of the real values that we take from this trial, um, first of all, it puts the prosecution in a much stronger position uh, for a retrial, and I expect that officer Porter only received a temporary reprieve and will be tried a second time. But it also allows the public uh, to gain transparency about what happened to Freddie Gray. Um, and in many ways, it provides opportunity to engage in real reform of police practice. Just to be clear, they could have in they could have convicted him on several of the four charges, is that right? And hung on others, but they were hung on all four charges? 
Yes, and what that suggests to me, and of course this is my educated speculation, is that there were probably a minority, perhaps one or two jurors, who were holdouts. I expect that at some point we will hear that the majority of the jurors voted to convict. Uh, but when you have hardcore people on a jury who refuse to convict on any of the charges, it led the judge uh, to declare a mistrial. And you were in the court every day, Doug. Could you talk about what the response was when the judge declared a mistrial? Well, um, the media, whom I spent a good deal of time with uh, trying to counter what I considered a, a, a strong pro-police perspective from other people who were commenting, um, took off and, and uh, of course, wrote their reports. Um, I, I think what's really important here, though, is the media perspective, and I certainly don't include all of the journalists, um, but there has always been a very strong criticism against the local prosecutor for doing something that very few prosecutors do, and that is uh, to bring charges and to be seriously determined to convict each of the officers. More than 98 percent of the police officers involved in the 2,700 killings of people over the past 10 years have not had to face criminal charges. So our local prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, is one of the very few who decided to bring charges and to be serious about doing so. Roberto Alejandro, you were there as well, reporter with OnBackground.com. What most surprised you about the case presented against Porter, as well as um, his overall defense? I mean, I think the thing that, to me, was most interesting was really more on the defensive side, because I feel like their strategy ran on two tracks. There was the one track that sort of dealt with the factual issue of where Mr. Gray was injured along the six stops that the wagon made that day when he was arrested. But there was another track where they effectively, I think, put the Baltimore Police Department on trial and said, look, this is a department that doesn't prepare its officers well through the, its, its training process in the academy. It has a sort of lackadaisical professional culture. And we shouldn't hold a 26-year-old officer with about two and a half years' experience when this incident happened responsible for the culture of the entire police department. And it was interesting to watch the defense in this case essentially make a sort of ethical-slash-structural argument, as they were also saying, don't convict this man, show the city that the whole damn system isn't guilty as hell. Roberto, could you talk about what new evidence and testimonies were introduced during the trial that shed more light on what actually happened uh, to Freddie Gray? I don't know that there was a ton of new evidence or anything that was particularly surprising that came up at the trial. You know, the state brought forward the chief medical examiner, Dr. Carol Allen, who performed the autopsy, as well as its medical expert, Dr. Mark Soriano, excuse me, Morris Mark Soriano. Uh, and, and they both presented a narrative in which Mr. Gray was injured between the second and fourth stops. I think that is more or less the sense that we've had leading up to the trial. He was injured, obviously, somewhere along the way. And the state presented its case, and the defense presented its side and suggested that the injury had to occur later, giving Officer Porter less opportunities to intervene. Uh, so to my mind, I don't know that we saw 
really new facts emerge that, that shed light in one direction or the other, we had two competing narratives about where the injury had occurred in light of facts that were probably largely established. But Doug, I want to ask you about one of the charges, uh, namely misconduct in office against Officer Porter. Judge Williams said it was not enough to show that Porter failed to follow department regulations. Instead, the jury had to find that he acted, quote, with an evil motive in bad faith. When the judge was asked to explain what that means, he refused to do so. Could you talk about the significance of that? Well, the judge does not want to give further direction to the jury during deliberations. And I think the real stumbling block for at least one of the jurors was whether Officer Porter represented the reasonable officer because he did what many other officers do, namely failing to protect his prisoner, or whether the reasonable officer is the one who follows what the police uh, commissioner tells every officer that they must do, which is seatbelt. One of the interesting things here is that Officer Porter um, told the uh, investigating detectives only five days after that Freddie Gray couldn't breathe and was in real danger. At trial, he said that that statement that Freddie Gray made was made much earlier. He also told... Um, the jury that he was it was too dangerous to seatbelt Freddie Gray when indeed just seconds before that he lifted Freddie Gray up only inches away from him and if Freddie Gray was able to do anything he could have very easily grabbed the officer's gun but at that point Freddie Gray was paralyzed and he couldn't do anything and that's what allowed the officer to conduct uh, the lifting up that he did. Professor Colbert, what does this mean for the next trial that's set for January, Caesar Goodson, the driver of the police van? Um, if now Porter, if there's a hung jury, and if today they, what, have a choice of either um, saying that they will retry him, or what else could they do? Could they grant him immunity? If they are going to retry him, that would mean he wouldn't be available to testify in the Caesar Goodson case. Well, they could ask for Porter's retrial to take place before Goodson if they wanted to do that. And that would put considerable pressure on Porter to decide what's the best course of action for him to take. Um, I think he has to be very concerned with just how strong the prosecution case was and how ineffective in many ways his own testimony must have been to many of the jurors. So they can offer him a negotiated plea. They could grant him immunity, which would allow him to testify for the prosecution. But, of course, we know that there's a code of silence among police officers that's going to move Officer Porter to perhaps not do what's best for him. Uh, but at this point, I expect the prosecution's cases will move forward. They have learned a great deal about the defense case. There are ways that they can improve their prosecution. There are also ways that the defense will become stronger uh, for the next trial as well. And, Roberto Alejandro, you are known for not only reporting in the courtroom, but on the streets. The response of the community after the announcement of the mistrial. Yeah, after the announcement of the mistrial went over to Gilmore Homes, which is the housing project in Sandtown, Winchester, where uh, Mr. Gray grew up, 
I would say that the mood there was largely subdued, um, but the persons I spoke to largely expressed hurt, you know, a sense that the jurors who represent the citizens of Baltimore in this trial don't care about their community, and that that was the message they received, as well as sort of an acute feeling that the system of justice that Mr. Porter faced was very different than the one that they tend to face. Uh, and many people talked about the fact that these officers are all receiving different charges, and that is not an experience they generally have when they're sort of at the wrong place at the wrong time and somebody's arrested. If, if you're in the area, you're likely to face the same charges as, as, as your co-defendants. Uh, and so there's, there's an acute sense of that, I think, in Sandtown, that the system is lopsided, especially when it comes to poor black residents in Baltimore City. Well, some Black Lives Matter activists were less critical of the verdict. DeRay McKesson, who lives in Baltimore, said in an interview with The New York Times, quote, This is a hung jury. It's not an acquittal. That's important. The prosecution resonated with the jury in some capacity, and that is undeniable. So could you respond to that, uh, Roberto? Was that the sense that you had from the people in the community you spoke to? No. I, I mean, I, I think that the... I think you have to remember that this is a community that, for all its issues, is fairly tight-knit. And they lost somebody that I think was cared for a great deal in that neighborhood. And so the sense there is that justice is, is something rarely that they receive, and that this is another example of, yet again, the justice system uh, not delivering on its promises where persons like them are concerned. And, you know, I understand, especially the clip we played earlier from, from Mr. Murphy, you know, the justice system plays out this way sometimes, and, and a hung jury is not the same as not guilty uh, or as a verdict at all, obviously, and they can retry the case. But uh, Mr. Gray doesn't get to retry his arrest, and, and I think that sense probably permeates the understanding of most residents of West Baltimore right now. We want to thank you both for being with us. Roberto Alejandro, reporter with OnBackground.com. We'll link to your pieces. And Douglas Colbert of the University of Maryland School of Law. As your body grows in, Well, for the first time, we are now seeing the racist rants of two high school boys accused of threatening African-American classmates. Much of this we just can't show on TV, but the Facebook posts have those two students from Edmonds Woodway High School facing serious criminal charges. Adam Mertz takes us inside juvenile court as they made their first appearance. It was just complete, utter, stupid banter. That's the voice of this father condemning his 16-year-old son's hateful words. Police say the Edmonds Woodway High School student, along with another 15-year-old student, are behind a racist Facebook group, a so-called killer squad Nigga! aimed at African Americans. These are extremely serious allegations which raise profound public safety concerns. The language on the private Facebook page too graphic to show. Many posts reference white power, lynchings, and the KKK. Court documents show specific threats to hurt and kill two African-American students. One of the students targeted in the racist rants told police they were immature and ignorant, while the other just didn't understand why he would be a target. An attorney for the 16-year-old said the student didn't actually plan on hurting anyone. I don't think there's ever any intent for him to carry out any of the threats. that He thought it was a joke. It was obviously not, especially in this day and age. 
Court documents revealed that other teens also joined the racist Facebook group. But these two students were the only ones who made direct threats to harm others. The school district already expelled both teens who now face charges of malicious harassment. In Snohomish County, Adam Mertz, Q13 Fox News. And that's it. Serena Williams, Wimbledon champion for a sixth time. All the big trophies and the big titles in her hands at once. It's my take on WTOP. The Washington Post Clinton Yates tonight says Serena Williams is a very deserving sports person of the year. Serena Williams was named sports person of the year by SI and immediately people started freaking out because they thought that a horse, American Pharaoh, was more deserving. Come on, folks. I realize that the so-called sport of kings is a majestic feat accomplished by the greatest of beasts, but let's get real. Horses are not people. You can't interview a horse after a race. Not to mention that, hello, Serena Williams is completely incredible. Her dominance in tennis is like nothing we've ever seen, and she's an even better actual person to boot. If you think an animal running fast with a jockey on its back is more deserving of an honor than a human beating other humans in a non-team sport, you need to get your head checked. Williams was 53-3 and this year. She's the third individual female athlete to be given the award and the first black woman to do so as well. Her game rocked, her year rocked, and now she's got a magazine cover with her sitting on a throne to prove it. She deserved it, not some horse. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. Mr. Ed, I worked with him for two years. That disgusting bigot ass horse. Mr. Ed, take four. Oh, I better get out of here. Took you long enough, nigger. Sports Illustrated has just named the 2015 Sports Person of the Year, and it happens to be Serena Williams. However, some people are upset that it's Serena Williams, a human athlete, as opposed to a horse, an animal athlete. So mm. there's the cover. She looks banging. She's a badass. I love it. And I also love all the tears that all these little bitches are crying on the Internet. Because they oh, can't wow, handle man. the fact that a black woman won this honor. Okay? By the way, I, I'm consistent when it comes to these like ridiculous magazine awards. Who cares about them? But the fact that it's making all the racists cry is making me a little happy. So let me tell you what people are saying. Uh, one person, um, actually it's a columnist uh, named Brian Zips from HorseRacingNation.com. Look, this guy likes horses, so I could see. I don't think that he's racist. I think he just really loves this horse. Yeah, just before you read that, let me be clear about that. Some of the people who are objecting are obsessed with horses. God bless their hearts. Yeah. Some happen to be racist. and You'll see the tweets from the racists that are obvious. Yes. So those are distinct groups. Yes. This guy, I don't think he is. I just think that he has a fascination with horses and racing. Okay. He says, but American Pharaoh won the Grand Slam and Serena Williams did not. Once again, thoroughbred horse racing has been denied by mainstream sports media. <laughs> well, there, it's a, sports media is notoriously anti-horses. Uh, and everybody knows this. They're actually slightly racist towards horses. Uh, and so, uh, are we really going to compare <laughs> human athletes to animal athletes? Is that what we're doing right now? Yeah, I would be. I would be more outraged if there was a horse on the cover of Sports Illustrated as opposed to a human. Now I get it. Serena Williams didn't win. You know the tennis thing that she was supposed to win. The I forget. Thing. What, yeah, the Grand Slam. Yeah, yeah, Grand Slam. Whatever. <laughs> she was this close, and she won an extraordinary number of tournaments in a row. Uh, and. Look, I know every year everybody's waiting for the triple crown. This year could be, could be, right? And it never is, and this year it was. And so for the horsing dudes, like, this is their apex. It doesn't get any better than this. They're going to wait, like, another 18 years for another triple oh. crown winner. So the, the horsey guys are upset. I get it. But he's just human. I say save the humans. 
Man, people have nothing better to do if this is what they're upset about. Like, you, I actually envy your life, right? Because it means that your life is so hunky-dory that you're going to literally cry over a horse. Now, I, 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 again, the guy works for HorseRacingNation.com. If he doesn't get pissed about this, though, what is he going to get pissed about? I don't know, man. Find <laughs> another hobby. Okay, let me give you I, more. I know it sounds like he's getting on his high horse, but I'll give him this one. All right, so let me, let's, let's now go to the racist, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, one person on Twitter From the wrote, to the racist. Yeah. One person says, I'm so tired of black America. Flush Serena down the toilet without a wipe. That's from Joaquin Gonzalez. Okay, but Joaquin, what do you, what do you, how do you read Sports Illustrated at all? I got news for you. A lot of the athletes are black. Right. He's like, oh, there goes LeBron James. They put him on the cover. Yeah. Black America again. No, but yeah, he, he's pretty good. I mean, how do you pick up any of the Sports Illustrated and not get frustrated if you're a racist? Think about how frustrating <laughs> it is for black athletes or just black people in general, right? Where you do incredible things, as Serena Williams has done. Her athletic ability, I mean, how, do you, how are you going to question her athletic ability? And then even after you win awards, because of your athletic ability, people point to you and say, you see that? They just gave her the award because she's black. <laughs> think about, think what about. She, look, how, I don't know about anything about tennis. But I think she won like 15 tournaments in a row. <laughs> Who did the other opponents? They were like, oh, she's black. No, let's give it to her. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not how it went down. All right, we have more. Okay, by the way, let me give you some more context, by the way. Um, so Sports Illustrated had an online poll, as many of these magazines do, to see who their readers think should win this award. Now, uh, recently we did the Time Magazine Person of the Year. Uh, who won it again? Uh, Angela Merkel. Yeah, that's right. Angela Merkel. See, that's how much I care See, about these Yeah, magazines. no, but I was pissed, actually, because I thought a horse should have won. <laughs> okay, so Angela Merkel won, but, of course, Time Magazine had a poll, and they asked their readers, like, who do you think should win? And Bernie Sanders overwhelmingly won the people's vote. Now, with Sports Illustrated, American Pharaoh won the people's vote. And so all the supporters for the horse are upset about this. They said, American Pharaoh overwhelmingly won online poll, and yet you pick someone else. It's not someone else. It's a horse versus a human. What a joke. Okay, all right, I know, dude. They, they do online polls, and almost every time they don't pick the person who won the online poll. Let's collectively get over it a little bit. Okay, another person writes, ha, 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 ha. They chose Serena, a.k.a. Jack Williams, oh, because she is black. Only reason, none, none other. American Pharaoh winner. Another I got bad news for Holly. Mm -hmm. uh, American Pharaoh, also brown-skinned. Mm. Mm. Maybe that's that's maybe why that's why they let her win the triple crown. When let him or her, whatever, win the triple crown. Yeah, affirmative action and yeah. racing. You didn't think about that. Where's your Where's the white horses? Where's the white horses? This is all racism. And then one more tweet from Holly. <laughs> uh, Thanks to her massive steroid use for decades, she is more Jack than Serena. Liberals also like that. Confused genders. Oh, okay. Lots great. of classy people out there. Way to discriminate against her for several different reasons. Well, Holly, if you're so, you know, um, great. I mean, I know that uh, racists believe that they're from the superior race. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you play tennis against Serena Williams, see who's better? I mean, you're from the superior race, right? <laughs> Just find, so find something else to do. If, if magazine covers are making you upset, you have n nothing going on in your life. you got to figure out what you need to do to keep yourself busy. <laughs> <laughs> so. Like poetry is the possibility of language. Please give me a break. In a year when racism has been front and center in the national conversation, everywhere from Ferguson to Charleston, acts of bigotry on campuses to police violence, 
It's illuminating. It's, it's shattering to pick up Claudia Rankin's book, Citizen. It's not a work of activism or outrage, exactly. It's a, it's a book of poetry, prose poetry. It's quiet, insinuating, powerful. I've never read anything that gives a more visceral and unsettling experience of what it feels like to be on the receiving end of prejudice. When a woman you work with calls you by the name of another woman you work with, it is too much of a cliché not to laugh out loud with the friend beside you who says, oh, no, she didn't. Still, in the end, so what? Who cares? She had a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Yes, and in your mail, the apology note appears referring to our mistake. Apparently, your own invisibility is the real problem causing her confusion. This is how the apparatus she propels you into begins to multiply its meaning. What did you say? At the end of a brief phone conversation, you tell the manager you are speaking with that you will come by his office to sign the form. When you arrive and announce yourself, he blurts out, I didn't know you were black. I didn't mean to say that, he then says. Aloud, you say. What, he says? You didn't mean to say that aloud. Your transaction goes swiftly after that. Well, as anybody who has um, been alive and thinking about poetry in the last year knows, your great book, Citizen, is filled with a collection of microaggressions, a term that I think was coined in about 1970, ways that speech reveals racism and injures and how it's received. Those who, who don't, aren't on the receiving end might find some of these that are recounted in Citizen unbelievable in all senses of the word. You spent years collecting them, both through your own personal experience and talking with others. Is that right? Yes. I, you know, it's funny to think of collecting them as what it would mean to live your life, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but I, I spent years living my life and, and experiencing um, these statements coming at me and negotiating them and learning how to respond to them and also interviewing friends and asking them, can you tell me these moments? Can you remember them? And often, it, it was funny, often when I asked people, they would say, I can't remember any. But then a day or two later, the phone would ring and that same person would call back and have hundreds of stories. You know, I'm exaggerating a little what, bit. What accounts for the delay? What, what accounts because for I think Because I think you had to press them down. You had to, in order to, to get through the day, you had to put them away. And what is the accumulative effect, which is what this book is also about? It changes the way in which you negotiate a space, places where you work, interaction with friends. So I think you, you develop a kind of sensitivity, um, a distrust, an inability to completely relax around people of a different race. You know, there are, there are binaries that I think about all the time when it comes to these issues. One binary is race is a construct, mm -hmm. and at the same time, race is as real as the table that's right here between the two of us. When you hear someone say race is a construct, mm -hmm. which is much in the conversation now as anything else, how do you react to that? Well, it's, it's probably the most optimistic statement there is because it means it can be reconstructed. 
But I believe it. It is a construct. It's a, we who, but it's so integral at this point to who we are that it's hard to pull it apart. You know, one of my pet peeves is why when white people are named in the press, they're not labeled as white. How they get to hold the space of the man or the woman rather than the black man or the Arab man. And so I think we need to start thinking about whiteness as something to be labeled so that we begin to understand what that construction really means. You also use the metaphor of the body, which has become not only, certainly not only yours at the moment, the black body absorbing aggressions, macro mm-hmm. and micro and catastrophic, has, is very much in the conversation now. How did that happen? You, you see it in ta Coates's essay, see it in your work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think people are beginning to think about um, the ways in which black health is related to social circumstances. You know, I I was reading your piece, Blood at the Root. and Right, the, the article I wrote about Charleston after the killings there. In that piece, there's so much about spirituality. And that doesn't account for all that's happening in the body. I mean, you can't actually give it to the Lord. All the stresses are then having to be negotiated in terms of your blood pressure, in terms of comfort eating, you know, all those kinds of weird things that you think are just random are actually in response to something. If you are worried that your child won't make it home from school, what do you do with that worry? How does it play itself out on your, you know, in terms of your own habits? The fact that it sits like a rock on your heart is not without a physical consequence. Exactly. 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 You've traveled around the country quite a lot, giving readings, doing what poets and and authors do. What have you learned about the feedback that you've gotten back from readers, particularly on what we were just talking about? The most heartening thing that I have learned is that um, despite the specificity of the book as it focuses in on anti-black racism, everyone owns the book. Many, many Asian women have come up to me and said, this is my life. I didn't know I could speak up. I suddenly don't feel so alone. This is also true in the black community. I'm often approached by older black men. I think a generation of men who have negotiated racism privately for their entire lives and suddenly see themselves reflected in the pages and and I think feel the empathy that the book addressed to them, you know, in a sense. Citizen is set, at least implicitly, in communities like Pomona. Its speakers tend to come from worlds of at least middle-class privilege or universities or professionals. You've made a journey to Ferguson in the wake of the killing there, and I wonder what was your experience in Ferguson, which is certainly not Pomona, California. Well, you know, one of the things that happened to me when I went to Ferguson was I realized how naive I was. I thought that I was going to go to Ferguson and kind of hang out in a coffee shop and talk to people. And then as we were driving there, there were no coffee shops. And instead, we ended up walking the streets. You know, I had two of the most moving interactions I've had in recent memory 
a woman came up to me and she said to me, do you want to take a picture of my son? I can, you know, and she pulled his hands up in the air. And I panicked. I was like, no, I don't want to take a picture of your son. And do not put his hands in the air like somebody is about to shoot him. Why are you doing that? And so I immediately got down on my knees because this was a small child and started talking to him and was, in fact, kind of rude to the mother. But I, I felt like I needed to stop the moment. She offered this up because this is what all the other news photographers and sort of crisis tourists wanted to see? I think so. I think she thought, you're here for this. You're here literally for the death of my son. And then later I'm standing and a guy comes out, two guys come out, and they say, "I, I, you know, we heard that there's food somewhere. And I see there's a pastor handing out food, and I said, it's across the street. But I'm standing next to the memorial, and there's a picture of Michael Brown, and one of the guys, the younger one, says, he looks just like me. And he's not exactly talking to me. He's just standing next to me. So I don't say anything. And he says it again. He says, he looks just like me. At which point, uh, you know, I want to say, no, he doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't look just like you because he's passed away and you're still here. And um, so instead I say, the food's across the street. So again, there was this moment that I just wanted to break. So it was an interesting... But his insistence meant something. An insistence meant that he was, he recognized that he was as vulnerable as Michael Brown. How does humanity develop? How does it improve? How does racism, if it can, recede despite the overwhelming power of history? Well, I think I think that the the what's difficult to understand is how it's kept going, how it has stayed so firm for centuries. I mean, we've seen improvements in the way people think about um, gay Americans, for example, and I think that had to do with understanding that this could happen in your own family. You can actually have a gay son or a gay daughter, and and these people were people, as you understand people to be. But because white Americans can keep themselves separate from black Americans, there is a sense that this other will never be who I am. So if there is a way to get people to understand. I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that question. I don't know. You know, um, Robin Kelly says that we're going to need a surrealist moment. There's going to have to be something that breaks the continuum. Because until white women start giving birth to black babies, I think we are going to stay living in these incommensurable experiences. Not welcome. The image of Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump speaks volumes as he calls for a ban on Muslims entering the U.S. The comments flood the globe, the latest expression of American fear, hatred, and stunning ignorance, for it is based on an illusion of American innocence. Many, many Muslims have been in America for centuries. They've been invisible 
largely because they already were stigmatized, for they were black. Africans captured from sites in the west coast of Africa, in places like Senegal, they brought these beliefs with them. So it's a little late for a ban. Moreover, this call actually has little to do with Muslim immigrants and everything, with Americans born here, especially white Americans, who are anxious over their falling share of the American demographic and the precipitous growth in brown America. By imagining themselves as Christians, instead of what they really are, white nationalists, they position themselves as enemies of Islam and the billions of inhabitants of Muslim states in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Nor is it coincidence that this is a Republican endeavor, for the party has been racing toward its white self for over half a century, perhaps put best by sociologist Andrew Hacker, who in his 1992 work, Two Nations, Black and White, wrote, one of the two major parties, the Republicans, has all but explicitly stated that it is willing to have itself regarded as a white party, prepared to represent white Americans and defend their interests. Of course, Republican administrations make sure that they appoint a few black officials, either vocal conservatives or taciturn moderates willing to remain in the background, and they are especially adroit in finding apt candidates for the Supreme Court and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. An unwritten plank in the party strategy is that it can win the offices it wants without black votes. More than that, by sending a message that it neither wants nor needs ballots cast by blacks, it feels it can attract even more votes from a much larger pool of white Americans who want a party willing to represent their racial identity. The words of sociologist Andrew Hacker. Now, some seven to eight million Muslim voters needn't worry. Their votes are no longer needed nor wanted by the Republican Party. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, December 19th, 2015. So I have been told. Compensatory call-in. Looking forward to hearing commentary from victims of racism. Uh, The news clips that we just heard. Other observations from the past week. Certainly, we will get to workplace racism and any mischief that has come about as a result of the holiday season, quote unquote holiday season. Feel free to chime in. The number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943. Pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. The number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four. 
three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Again, we are listener supported counter racist radio. Uh, you can visit the blog racism notes.blogspot.com. Address again is racism notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested uh, down through the years. I uh, hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. With that, few quick notes, uh, observations, and then we will hit the phone lines. Uh, number one, the report on uh, Edmonds Woodway High School right here in Washington State. Uh, where they were talking about these two uh, race soldiers, teen race soldiers who had made all these threats uh, about killing and lynching niggers and everything else that they were going to do. I think they uh, named some specific uh, black students at their high school uh, in that report. Now, they said, you know, it's it's all heinous and we got to sanitize it. This is so brutal. The language is so graphic that uh, we can't share it. Now, they said that these... Uh, two teens, at least the ones that have been charged, uh, that they had formed a quote-unquote killer squad. That is not accurate. The name of the squad was Nigger Killer Squad, and they have this, they have the documents that show this. Now, I have heard and seen enough reports, white people know how to do N-word killer squad. They say N-word all the time when they want to. In my opinion, that's just another way in terms of talking about the power of the press where they are always minimizing the war against black people i'm very much for let's not sanitize let's be uh let's not dilute let's be as accurate as possible when we're talking about racism white supremacy because they started off the clip with the major minimizing where they're in court with this little race soldier these little demon urchins and it's all they were stupid they were ignorant they were silly just him all of this as opposed to no these are terroristic threats and hey can we can we prosecute them as adults that's what they do to us right can we prosecute them as adults that's the way that we should be racism is war that's what it says at the top of the blog racism is war that's the way that we should be thinking about this not minimizing not thinking of these as microaggressions not thinking of these as ignorant white people stupid white people i heard that a lot during the clip as well that's not what this is at all and let's not dilute let's not minimize Let's call it exactly what they said. They didn't say killer squad. They said nigger killer squad. I also thought it was significant as well that they are prosecuting two of these little uh, race soldiers. There were other white people who joined this online forum, other white teens who joined this group. And apparently they did not make the same type of threats. But in my opinion, if you have joined the group and unless you're going and, and reporting and going and being a quote unquote whistleblower, as they say, you are complicit. They should be charged too. moving forward. Uh, there was a report I did not include it in the audio segment, but same thing uh, in California, uh, high desert prison. 
uh, where there was this massive investigation. This was in the L.A. Times, it was in the New York Times, a lot of different places. Uh, the report on the L.A. Times, uh, state investigators cite culture of abuse, racism by high desert state prison guards. And they talk about uh, how they were setting up people for uh, abuse. Uh, it was an entrenched culture of racism uh, is the way they describe it. In the L.A. Times report, if you scroll down in the article, it says that uh, the report released Wednesday included interviews with inmates who said officers called inmates nigger or wetbacks and gave white prisoners access to the canteen while keeping African-American ones out and subjecting them to harsher treatment. The majority of inmates at the prison are Non-white people, they use the term minorities, but that shouldn't be used in my opinion. The majority of officers are white. The prisoner said he got that KKK feeling from High Desert, the report said. This is another one that got minimized because I did have audio where they were talking about this, but they totally excluded racism from the report. There was not one mention of racism or this having a KKK feeling, the majority of the uh, offending officers being white, the majority of the inmates being non-white, them uh, not giving black inmates access to water. <laughs> like it, all of that was totally excluded. They just yammed about it. And I'm of the opinion white would do this all the time, all the time. Uh, moving forward, uh, the report about the DNA, which I thought was uh, really fascinating with that. I just thought it was interesting. And I might even say that Diane Reem, uh, because I didn't hear it, that segment was about an hour and I uh, played maybe 10 minutes of it. But in the clip, unless I you know, just missed it or my attention dropped for a second while I was listening to the whole thing and making my edits, uh, they did not mention the major report that came out earlier this year where the FBI, their own forensic scientists, they admitted that they had made all of these errors. And they were talking about hundreds and hundreds of cases where they had made all of these errors and had given the impression that they had this flawless pristine science and nothing could be further from the truth they had given out all this bogus uh data that you know helped get people uh convicted because i think they said like over 90 percent of the time the information that they had it was supporting the prosecution uh and it turns out that a lot of this stuff was totally bogus they didn't bring that up at all and i thought that was hugely relevant uh to that report that a lot of this stuff is is not even accurate um Moving forward uh, quickly, just the report about uh, Freddie Gray. I, I thought it was very curious the people who were saying that they thought this mistrial, either that it was uh, somehow supporting the prosecution or that they found something positive out of this. That was not my impression at all. Not that I expected, uh, not that I expect any of these officers to be convicted. Uh, but just uh, if it's a mistrial, my memory, even my recent memory of mistrials, is like what happened uh, with the Jonathan Farrell. Uh, murder case uh, in North Carolina where you had a mistrial and then very quickly they decided that they were not uh, going to retry the white race soldier. Uh, think of Ayanna Stanley Jones. They had a mistrial. They tried the officer again and the charges ultimately got thrown out. That tends to be what I've seen happen pretty frequently, particularly when it is an enforcement officer uh, where there's some sort of mistrial hung jury and they decide that they're going to do it over again. Uh, I've just seen quite a few times where they decide to not even retry the person uh, or somewhere along the line, the case falls apart and there's just no conviction. I just, I don't know why anybody would, would look at that and, and think that that's something that is leading in the correct direction. Or I think it, the metaphor that was used, this is a, this is a speed bump. 
on the route to justice. That was not my interpretation at all. Um, the Serena Williams uh, segment, I thought it was inter- the horse thing and all that that got covered, but I thought it was uh, interesting. Sports Illustrated, they were the ones that made the decision right for crowning her the sports person of the year. They had a report this week where they said the best moment of her career, and I think they even described, I think they quoted Serena Williams saying this, which uh, lends more credence uh, to their position on this, but they said that her returning to Indian Wells, that was the best moment of her career. They quoted her as saying the same thing. Uh, Indian Wells, if folks remember, in 2001, that's where she went uh, with her father, Richard Williams, and, and you had thousands of white fans in California. They were furious. They thought they had been cheated uh, by these nigger tennis players and their nigger father, and they were mad and yelling and cursing. And Mr. Way, he has a whole chapter in his book that we read, uh, Black and White, The Way I See It, Richard Williams, where he describes the atmosphere, what he heard, the way that he was talked to and all that. You can watch the whole match. It's on YouTube, and you can hear for yourself the way that she was treated. She was 19 at the time. She had not played in the tournament. I think Venus Williams has said she will never go back. She did not return. Uh, But Serena Williams went back this year and they said that, oh, man, the reconciliation, the forgiveness. Oh, this is just incredible. And I thought that was intricately tied to them giving her this award. Uh, We have talked about that concept of victims of racism, forgiving whites for abusing, raping, pillaging, terrorizing us. We've talked about that repeatedly and how important that is uh, to the maintenance of racism, white supremacy, as white people have no intention of discontinuing the abuse uh, that they love it. They know the value of having victims come out and say, oh, I forgive, knowing that they're just going to turn around and bop you again the next day. And we can just do this uh, pathetic ritual of uh, forgive and be abused again. Forgive and be abused again. We can just do that on into eternity. But I thought that was really important. I didn't even see that until like Thursday or Friday. They had this big write-up about that, you know, being such a a great moment and and connecting it to her being crowned Sports Person of the Year. Last thing I'll get in, uh, that piece we heard right at the end, uh, poet Claudia Rankin. I think I've been pretty public in my statements about not liking poetry, right? I have no, no shame or anything about saying that. That's just my view. I'm not a big poetry fan. Uh, I knew about her work, uh, her book, Citizen, and and all these poems about racism. Uh, She's a victim of racism, just like me. I have not figured out this problem. Uh, I'm not an expert on racism. I am sure I could learn uh, some things uh, from Miss Rankin, uh, even in the clip that you heard in the interview, uh, the point that she made about uh, white people not being identified as white. I think that's important. That's something that I try to do on this program. Uh, making sure that whites are indeed identified as white uh, when we talk about them. I think she made some other quality uh, observations uh, within the piece, and there might even be some of the poetry that she wrote I might enjoy. However, I saw enough. It's it's just enough. It's kind of some of the same things that I've said about ta Coates. Anything that white people get really riled up about, I tend to, to pause and reflect on why white people Uh, are so enamored with this work, especially if it's a black person and they're talking or doing anything associated with racism and white people really glom onto it and and have lots of praise and adulation for it. I I just, it gives me pause. Uh, That's the great Malcolm X, Minister Malcolm, as he said, uh, anything that makes white people happy, I get suspicious. And uh, just when she got to the, there were other things, the conflation with, with, quote-unquote gay rights and all that but when she got to the end and she said uh, i don't know what's going to change this we need a surreal moment until white women start having black babies that was 
<laughs> out of another amongst many where I was like, okay, yeah, I can I can see where white people would uh, would promote, would find value uh, in this. Uh, I think she, she got a lot of attention even a couple weeks. I think her book came out last year. Uh, her book's been out for a while, but I think she got a lot of attention even recently. Some, some black person was at a Donald Trump rally and uh, was reading her book, and they made a big to-do about this. Like, yeah, the black person is at the rally and is not even paying attention to, to, to Donald Trump. She's reading, uh, I think it was a black female, she's reading Claudia Rankin's uh, Citizen. Oh, wow, isn't that powerful? And white people blew that all up uh, in the media a couple weeks ago. Anyway, with that We'll get to the folks who uh, dialed in. The number one more time is 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, I'm calling for today, if we could not do metaphors on the program, I do want to get a correction. People have said that I have said that we're not supposed to use metaphors. That is not accurate. <laughs> Just in, in the business of being accurate, being correct, uh, I have not said we should not ever use metaphors when talking about racism. I use metaphors when I talk about racism. The Voltron effect, that is a metaphor. I use them, uh, I won't say all the time, but I use them pretty regularly. What I have said, though, is that every time they are used, they should be investigated. People should really be checking. Your alert should go up to make sure that what's being compared is accurate. Because frequently, uh, when people are talking about racism, metaphors get employed. And man, they are all over the place in terms of what people are comparing, what point they're trying to drive home. A lot of times they will get your emotions riled up so it'll kind of bypass your logic where you're not really critically analyzing what's being said to make sure that it's accurate, to make sure that it's true, to make sure that it's logical. Uh, so I just encourage folks to always interrogate and really give some time to make sure that, you know, the metaphor, the comparison uh, is accurate uh, to what's being said. Uh, not that you shouldn't use them, but I do say specifically, like I'm saying specifically for today, this Saturday, December 19th, let's not use metaphors. Let's be specific precise exact uh, about what it is that we're trying to say as opposed to bringing in a lot of uh, colorful <laughs> uh, similes and, and metaphors and what have you to try to uh, communicate uh, but if we could watch the background noise that would be great uh, if you could just remember that other people uh, are on the line as well who would like to share so if you could be uh, concise with your commentary that would be greatly appreciated uh, thank you kindly all the people that dialed in with a hand up Line should be open. Hello? Yes, sir, we can hear you. Hold on one second. I noticed something that's it's funny about um what seems to be white intent. Like, they do something, and it's always that you should focus on what was their intent, as if you're a mind reader, and not check out what is the outcome of their actions. The outcome of white actions are never to be just analyzed just as what is the outcome, how they move, but you should try to dig deeper and find humanity inside of inhumane actions by these people. They want to practice terrorism against you. They want to... Psychological, practice psychological warfare. They're putting out movies like 
gods of Egypt and all of them are Europeans. Just don't worry about the the outcome of it. Just worry about the intent. Try to find out a deeper, the deeper meaning of it. The Beauty and the Beast, Disney, like these type of psychological aspects of attacking the psyche of non-white people, specifically Africans. You know, that's all I'm gonna speak for. It's it's very funny. And like you was talking about how African life keeps getting compared to homosexuality or it just keeps getting linked to like first you'll be talking about Africans being denied things and then the next thing it's well homosexuals also like what <laughs> with this comparison is just it's it's horrible. It's horrific. I don't understand it. That's all I gotta say. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, um, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Thomas Smith in New York. Um, I had a few observations to make. Uh, first one is um, Santa Claus is white, as is Jesus and all other mythological figures in white history. So I hate when black people try to paint Santa Claus black. It's like when they try to paint Jesus black. Um, we need our we need either to create our own narrative for Christmas if we're going to celebrate it. But just leave Santa Claus out, teach our kids from infancy he never existed. And um, let's not forget in um, Europe, Santa Claus is always accompanied with Black Peter, his slave, you know, with a red nose. And over here, he's Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, you know, instead of a racehorse. But um, that there, um, St. Louis and Ferguson clips that you played, um, Gus, you called it. Uh, how long has it been since that whole thing happened? I can't remember. About a year um, and a half. So it's been a year and a half. <laughs> and still, nothing has changed. Um, they got national attention. We got Black Lives Matter. We got hands up, don't shoot. A federal investigation. It's still the same thing going on in that same area. Um, and black people still hope. I don't get it. Uh, first, um, they did the hear evidence. We played that clip, uh, I think, a year ago. Yeah, they said, hey, man, this hear evidence isn't that accurate. There was a lot of cases they would have had to go back on, I think, 300,000 or something, uh, I think. Um, then um, they had a release of a report where they were saying how the um, people that collect the evidence, um, when they do the fingerprint testing, how it has to probably have eight points, but they testified against people just using three or four points. So how many people are in jail from that? And now DNA evidence. Um, so, you know... If you're plead not guilty and you want to face that all white jury, um, you know, they're going to come with false evidence anyway. They got you either way. It's terrible, terrible. And um, I have to correct myself. I had said before, I think the three worst words a black person could hear is all white jury. I think I'm taking that one back. Um, Baltimore. Baltimore has a black mayor, a pretty much all black city council. Black prosecutor, black chief of police, think it's a black judge, three of the cops are black, and the system worked perfectly. <laughs> it worked perfectly, I mean, without a hitch. So um, people, once again, still walking around voting, you've got an all-black city, I mean, you still get the same thing. Um, I don't think that's the answer. Um, the white lady talking about Ferguson, that poet, Man, um, her comments is why, you know, and I'm going to get a little region chew here, but I, I just hate these people, uh, in particular those women. 
um, white women giving birth to black babies. And then I understand, and I speak it. How many white women gave birth to black babies to this point, and they still ain't get it? So I don't think that's the answer. Um, including one of your former guests, I remember he was raised to think he was white, even though he was obviously black and didn't find out until he was in college. And I mean, this the racism he endured from his white mother. Just to put it all, um, I don't think racism is a construct. I think it's a finished product that's constantly under maintenance. That's really not a construct. It's built. Um, I wanted to say um, Serena and um, Venus as well. Over the last 20 years, I can't think of athletes that face more racist racism than they did. Um, and good thing, you know, I mean, I don't think they would have survived as long as they did if your father wasn't the black superhero he is. You know, um, Mr. Richie Williams from the book, I mean, one of the greatest black people ever to live. So, um, and um, lastly, um, the debt, um, the third debt, the third party debt collectors, they buy up the debt and you don't have to pay a third party debt collector. They, you have to pay a person who you sign to deal with. Um, so if you get something from Sears, first thing is your signature makes the money. They don't have no, if they give you $2,000 in credit, once you sign, if they give them $2,000, they give you credit. And you still got to pay them back the $2,000 plus interest, so they're making double off of it anyway. So all your, all your, your everything you sign for is already paid for. And um, the third-party debt collectors, they're just a scam. And um, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right. Um, hey, Gus, good to see you and greetings to all the callers. And, um, oh, yeah, I just wanted to, before I get into the clips, I just wanted to chime in um, regarding yesterday in the book reading, um, the section that we were talking about in the beginning, they said, um, like the rest of the world, that Europe, um, when they were discussing Europe's uh, agricultural or lack of agricultural skill, they started off by saying the rest of the world liked Europeans for one, uh, one pop away from, from, uh, from starvation. So that's where, I, that's where I got that whole idea that they were not just talking about Europe, but lumping all people, including Africans, together with them. Just to clarify that, I, I was able to read the passage over in the books. But um, I found it, to speak about the clips, I found it really interesting to air this segment on uh, the DNA testing because, I'm like you, I immediately thought about the FBI and uh, their 99% conviction rate being overturned with the same issues that you brought up. And it also made me think about the power of entertainment as far as the discussion on the show, uh, CSI, having an effect on citizens' views on the veracity of DNA testing. And um, I just think that a lot of this, is, like you say it quite a bit, you know, reading is way more important than watching television, and it just goes to show the fact that TV is the greatest means of uh, psychosocial conditioning that whites have ever invented simply because um, these shows give people the idea that even though they might not have ever set foot in the college for forensics, that these shows give them such great information that they think they can actually walk into a courtroom and um, actually believe what they're hearing in the courtroom when they're being lied to by so-called white professionals. And um, I just think that it's, it's just, it just gives me a lot of force of thought as far as the type of um, shows that you might, if you, if you watch TV, you might choose to participate in. And um, just the whole idea of the fact 
they call it uh, programming, television programming. Just the word programming, they're telling you what they're doing to you right there in the title. Um, and a lot of people kind of bypass that, so I thought that was very important. Um, also, I thought about the, the segment you played on the white kids who had threatened the black students um, on the private uh, Facebook page. And just the fact that these white people, you know, they, they always get the benefit of the doubt. Um, they're always trying to look for a way to, exactly like you said, to minimize uh, the danger of these students until they pull a Dillis or Ruth or they pull a Columbine High School. And then if it's a black student, they can, a black student can do 20 times less than what this white kid did, and they'll try to bury him under the jail. Um, and we, we need to start seeing that everything that they do the entire system, um, like you said, is just it's written into the genetic code of the system. The theory, as um, Dr. Lauren Barney said, um, there's just no way around it. There's no aspect of our lives that aren't that isn't controlled and or dominated by the system of racism and white supremacy. And um, we just need to keep that in mind, no matter what uh, news clip we're listening to or watching, or um, or any so-called television show, the television programming that they're in- attempting to program us with all day, every day. And um, the segment on uh, uh, Serena <laughs> in a contest with a horse for, <laughs> for an award was just uh, just so interesting simply because um, nothing has changed. I mean, we've been compared to animals, and actually that was our whole purpose. They literally called us chattel, chattel slaves, movable property. And the whole idea of comparing her athleticism with that of a horse, again, it's the whole idea of um, minimizing uh, the black feminine energy and uh, likening it to that of some sort of subhuman, debased, over-sexualized, animalistic uh, kind of approach. And um, it just really goes to show that these are, this is the way that white people view us. They view us collectively like ants or something, something they could just step on by the million, you know, kill us off, and then just, like, like you said, go on with your day, go have dinner, you know, have a picnic or whatever the case may be. And to me, that, that whole segment just really speaks to the um, continued psychosocial conditioning of um, white psychopathology in the way of uh, seeing black people as less than human. And on a film, the segment we played uh, with, the, I believe it was a white lady in Ferguson that uh, talked about the black female asking her to take a picture with her son with his hands raised um, in the air as if he didn't want to get shot. And it just goes to show that, I mean, we have just been so conditioned to accept being murdered by these people, um, whether it's an average citizen, i.e. George Zimmerman, or a police officer, or anyone else, it's like, it's like we just understand this open season on us at all times, and for her to have her young child, um, you know, posed in that sort of a, uh, or try, uh, attempt to pose in for a picture of that sort was really disturbing, because it just really goes to show that we, some of us, have really um, accepted that this, this is just the way we're going to be treated. And um, obviously she's somehow conditioned to the point that she's thinking her, her, her child, so such a young child, can be killed at any time, which is the actual truth. But it's just the whole concept of us having uh, children and having to think about that on a daily basis and um, just that white people can do whatever they want with reckless abandon. And um, there's never any sort of issue brought up or, or, or made about that kind of thing. And then I thought about uh, all the different clips that you discussed the uh, missing information that the journalists did not uh, speak about it, even uh, to go back to the CSI case where they didn't connect the, uh, the FBI situation to that. And it just really made me think that journalism itself is just an industry um, based on the rhetorical ethics when it comes to white supremacy. 
it reminds me of the um, Ben Tillman book when they discuss the Edgefield advertiser because if you look at American culture, journalism is always touted as being on the supposedly being on the right side of history and reporting things from a, a, a moral aspect in which they're supposed to be on the right side of history. But throughout the history of this country, uh, racism and white supremacy just infests and infects. Um, a gang has a gangrenous effect in the uh, system of journalism in which it just completely bolsters and supports uh, the deception and the lies that white people put out there and the misinformation and the propaganda um, that really continues to make black people look like uh, less, less than human beings. And it also continues to perpetuate this ideology of, of like you said, forgiving white people when they terrorize and abuse us. Um, and also looking at white people as if they're uh, they basically saints. No matter, no matter what they do to us, they're basically good people who have made bad choices. And with black people, we, we, we make the smallest choices and we get gunned down. So um, it just really speaks volumes. And um, thank you very much. I'm Iman. Thanks for taking my call. For sure. That is fascinating. The, uh, the segment at the end with the poetry... Um well, I guess before I even get to that, where she was talking about uh, going to Ferguson and seeing this black mom who had her black child and she said, oh, do you want to take a picture of my of my child uh, and having the child with his hands up? I was thinking uh, that this could have been closer to when everything was, you know, really a buzz in Ferguson last year uh, when they were doing the hands up, don't shoot protest that that could have been um, that could have been her thinking. Um, the mom, the black mother's thinking, not um, put your hands up, you're going to be sh- uh, shot. Uh, the the protest, the hands up, don't shoot uh, protest that was really popular back then, um, but maybe not. Who That was just what came to mind because that was everybody, that was everywhere uh, at the time. Uh, but I, it almost to me <laughs> sounded like people were thinking that that was a white woman talking. Did people think Claudia Rankin, that's who the, the female speaker was, who was doing, did the book of poetry and went back to Ferguson. Did people think she was white? Weirdly enough, I did just just because I guess her voice sounded uh, non-ethnic to me. It just came across. Usually, I'm pretty good at picking that out. But yeah, she came across as if she might not have been black. Even though I think I remember you saying that, I just wasn't sure if in that clip it was her that was speaking or someone else. That's why I thought she might have been white. But yeah, I did for a second there. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay. No, I no. This I mean, there's no video. I mean, there's so no I, video stuff. Um, yeah, and I thought Thomas in New York. Um, the comments that he made, I, it almost sounded as though he also was saying that she was a white person claudia rankin the person who said that uh that you know uh, things won't change until white women start having black babies and went to ferguson and uh the mom had the child and put their hands up and all that and she read the poem uh about uh white people uh not calling black people by the correct name that is a black female claudia rankin that is a black female uh who was kind of at the i did i, I thought she was a white woman oh, okay but but being that being that you say that so she's a cult I got it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means, and that sounds like a metaphor, because uh, obviously she is not Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, that does sound like a metaphor to me. Um, other folks? Well, uh, no. oh, I'm sorry, Gus. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, greetings, everybody. This is uh, Puff. Uh, I was going to say, another reason that we thought she was, well, I bet I thought she was white. Well, she said that they're going to get, wasn't that the person that said they were going to give birth to black babies, that white women yes, ma'am. were going to give birth to black babies? So in that context, we thought, well, at least I thought, I thought that she was white. 
Yeah, I thought it was a Francis Nelson moment. <laughs> Francis Fresh Nelson moment at that point. I thought, oh, Dr. Wilson, right then and there. So, yep, you're right. I was thinking like you. from yet feel free to chime in there's a photograph if folks want to see what claudia rankin uh looks like the black female poet uh i'm putting it on the facebook page now so you can see what she looks like uh anyone we have not heard from yet you should be with us hey does do you know why the person i mean do you know why the the people uh, or how his friend got into no. or whatever? Or have you seen any other reports maybe that that, that point this out or no? No, 
Uh, from everything that I saw this week, um, nothing came out definitive uh, to give an explanation as to uh, how that happened. Um, and most of the reports that I saw, that was not even the focus uh, as to how that happened. It was just on, uh, is there going to be, uh, be a retrial and are the black people going to riot and run amok in Baltimore? And what is this, what's the impact of this mistrial going to be on the remaining five trials uh, that are coming up in 2016? I didn't, I didn't really hear much, uh, much time spent on exactly how his spine uh, was severed. Wow. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. Uh, greetings to Augusta host. The host the callers. 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 I just want to make a, a comment on that. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can hear you. I was just saying no speakerphone. I think someone had a speakerphone on maybe no speakerphone because it just caused a lot of disruption and we hear the echo in the background. Sorry about that, caller. Please proceed. Okay. Uh, it was just it was a, I think it was a part where they were talking about the Christmas parties, I think, on the job. And that might have been a white person talking on that segment where they were trying to use words and saying that, well, Sometimes the environment, you know, it may start out peaceful, or they might not have said peaceful, but some kind of similar word. Then someone makes racist jokes, and and uh, people might not have been as funny as they thought. It just sounds like a, a white person trying to uh, mitigate and minimize the uh, behavior of white supremacy and the kind of jokes they make when you're in those kind of situations. Because I haven't really been in that kind of situation myself but it's just the fact that they behave that way in their thought speech and action pretty much all the time and they'll, they'll use words like oh well it's just ridiculous and they just they're just ignorant they need to grow up or something but they're just not calling it what it is and I, I did pick on some of the metaphors as well I think when uh that might have been the Young Turks and one of them mentioned one of the comments about Serena Williams. And it's interesting that they are making a big deal about her being on the magazine cover. But one of the comments, I think some guy said, well, black people are making this country flush down the toilet. And I think uh, you might have pointed that out as well about those comparisons about, you know, toilets and uh, fecal matter and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I called him to that one, and he, I think the guy pointed out that, well, what, what about, you know, the horse isn't white, the horse is brown, and all those kind of symbolic details and stuff. So I found that kind of interesting. And one last thing, I think uh, that might have been the, the poetic part or the poetry part on the last segment, and I think the guy said something about, black body absorbing microaggressions and macroaggressions. Like I, I don't even I don't even know what that even meant. So, you know, I'm still uh, processing that myself. But that's that's pretty much all I have right now. Right on, right on. 
Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Good evening to you, Gus, and um, the host, and to um, all the other callers and listeners. Um, I just really want to say one thing that I can think of, and I just really want to thank you, uh, Gus, for talking about the uh, the mistrial, where people, you know, you're trying to make it seem like, oh, this is a good thing, blah, 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 like he was saying. But the reality is it's not a good thing. First thing, remember, he's not the only officer that's going to be tried. There are, what, five others? And so, you know, and I'm quite sure the strategy of how they're going to try these cases, you know, if the prosecutor thought that this may have been the, um, but I, I won't say the easiest case, but, you know, if we get a conviction with this case. But now you got a mistrial, so some of this is going to bold on the other police officers being tried because, you know, uh, you know, he was the first. And, you know, if they had gotten a conviction, you know, you could, not that you could say all oh, the others would have been convicted, but it would just seem like it may be a little bit easier for the other ones to be convicted. But now that you have a mistrial, you know, and then I think on the on the uh, clip somebody said something about they had to, they had to, I guess, find them either guilty or not guilty on four, I think it was four, four counts. And so they couldn't just, well, I find them guilty on this one, but they had to find them guilty on all four counts, that's if I'm remembering that right. So I can see why, I mean, you know, because stuff can be set up, you know, so that when you get into the jury room to make things confusing and everything like that. So I'm like you, you know, and I'm glad you brought that out. In my opinion, this is not a good thing. And then you were right when you brought them. I forgot about the other cases. Uh, like you say, the uh, feral, the guy that was on his knees and, you know, the man just basically executed him. And like it was a hung jury, they tried him again, and he, you know, I think he was found not guilty. And then you mentioned another tri trial, and usually these are how these things work. They have to set a date. People, you know, and you know, as life goes on, you know, you people we tend to, to forget about those things, and we put those things in the background. And you know, uh, just as much as what's going on out here, you know, you thinking about that, you know, then there are other cases. Remember, I'm in Ohio. They still haven't done anything with the Tamir Rice case, the Tamir Rice case in an open carry in an open carry state because Ohio is an open carry state. So I'm just saying that they do these things. I mean, that's why you, you go on with life. You tend to forget about that. And then, you know, you read in the paper, or you read on Facebook, or you hear it on the news that, well, this, this, this police officer, kind of like we're feral, so I'm not guilty. You know, so that's that, you know. So I'm just saying, that, you know, I really thank you for bringing that out because I don't know why um, McKeeson of, uh, uh, I can't think, DeRay, DeRay McKeeson, that he would say what he says, you know, he's a part of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, and, and I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but, <laughs> you know, we know a lot of, uh, we know a lot of stuff is going on and when people come out to say thing, they're part of organizations, you know, sometimes you have to be careful what you think what you say, but I was even kind of surprised that um, the Gray family lawyer, what he was saying, I was really kind of surprised with that, but then again, maybe I shouldn't be. But, I mean, we know a lot of this is just, you know, a lot of political maneuvering. You know, I mean, I, I doubt seriously, if any, if any one of those cops uh, is convicted of, of this young man's death, because even like Puff said, as of now, we still don't know 
how his injuries, his fatal injuries happened. Nobody still said that. I, I, I heard a piece of a, uh, something on the news, and it was something about, I guess, a part of the testimony, and the police officer said something like, well, we weren't taught to put them in seatbelts or something like that. It was something crazy. And I just remember I kind of chuckled. I said, now, if I'm driving down the street without a seatbelt, you can stop me and give me a ticket for not having a seatbelt on. But, yeah, you have a perp, somebody that's, you know, a perpetrator of, of an alleged perpetrator of a, of a crime, and you, you put them in the back of this van or this vehicle, but yet you weren't taught to put them in a seat belt, you know. So it's, it's just a lot of shenanigans, in my opinion. So I just, you know, we want to say um, thanks for bringing that out. And then I have a question. Are you still writing for the Atlanta Black Star? Uh, I'm, uh, no. <laughs> no, I'm okay. not uh, publishing. <laughs> no, no. Okay, okay. I just, you know, I just wanted to make sure, but thank you. I'll read my line. <laughs> Folks have uh, other comments, people that we have not heard from, have any comments and want to make sure they got in? Hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, I um, just wanted to say a few things I wrote down here around the segments. With the black Santa clips, one of the things that always bothers me when we talk about Christmas is that we don't ever take these symbols of white Santa, and if you're really into the Christian aspects of it, the white Jesus, it never really leads us to think outside of assimilation and I always get annoyed when we always try to take white supremacist things and try to put sort of a black face on it because I don't see how that would change the, the essence of Christmas or make it less of a white supremacist thing. And another thing with the issue with the white students, the clip about the white students, I think I missed what the problem was, but I think that it's important because one of the things I have a hard time convincing people is, is that we always think of, right, I find frequently that people tend to think of white racism as generally old or ignorant white people or they're old of age. And I think these incidences are great examples that, you know, white teenagers are just as racist as old white people. There's really no fundamental difference. And I think white children are, are, are a little Quite frankly, just based on my personal experiences, I think they're 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 they're, they're racist from from the get go. The minute they can talk and everything, so I, I think those incidents are very important. And one of the things I also notice is that white and the typical behavior I know is a very white supremacist behavior is that in the clips when they're when in particular the Serena Williams clip is everybody they're they're talking the two um, hosts are talking. And they're talking about, you know, the racism of other white people, but never themselves. It's always like these whites, they like to point out racism in other whites, but they don't ever want to ever hold themselves accountable for any racism. That's just something I noticed. And yeah, I'm done.
Oh, I'm finished. Hello? Hello? Yes, sir. Sir. Oh, I think I think I dropped. Did I drop out? Uh, I can still hear you. I don't. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Sorry. Well, yeah, I, I'm done. I think I just yeah, yeah, I'm finished. I don't. I don't. Uh, are there other folks who uh, wanted to comment that we haven't heard from yet? Gus, can I make another comment, please? Uh, is there anybody that we have not heard from yet who uh, wanted to talk? Your line should be open. Uh, go ahead, caller. Uh, Thomas in New York. Um, in one of the clips you played, they, they said that they wanted they, they, that the system of white supremacy needs to be deconstructed. I can't remember what clip it was. But it's like, you know, it's not going to work until we deconstruct the system. And I was just um, sitting here thinking that, you know, we read the book, uh, The Reconstruction of White Supremacy, or should I say you read the book. And, um, and, and that that was after the book we're reading now, where they've already reconstructed racism a couple of times. We went from African slavery then to ingrown American slavery to... You know, well, now they could, regular people could own slaves in the West. And then you get to the free to slaves reconstruction. So, I mean, I don't think it's something that it's been reconstructed so many times that I don't think it could be de deconstructed. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Yeah, I think that might have been the uh, Claudia Rankin segment as well, but I'm not uh, totally for sure, but I know they were talking about the uh, construct of white supremacy there, and that was a part of uh, the rhetoric of hope and, and that sort of thing. I think that was the same uh, same segment. Other folks, uh, there is anybody that we have not heard from yet uh, who wanted to comment? Anyone that we have not heard from yet? I assume some of the folks who have a hand up uh, who have not commented, they might be worried, uh, waiting for workplace racism. We have about maybe 15 minutes before we get to workplace racism. Uh, uh, other folks uh, who wanted to chime in, if you have already commented, if you had something else you wanted to make sure you got in before we transition to workplace racism. Uh, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thanks. Um, uh, uh, I was going to say in regards to Freddie Gray, um, I was looking at the clip when I first looked at the clip when the white officers assaulted him because when they approached him on the street, I don't believe there were any black officers involved at that point. I believe they became involved once he was in the vehicle and it was on his way to the precinct, but not actually on the street. And from what I saw, he looked like he was paralyzed before he was even placed in the vehicle. They had to carry him in 
to the vehicle, and it looked like he was paralyzed from the neck down just from how his, he was behaving and how limp his body was. So I don't really believe that those injuries were incurred um, in the van. I think they were exacerbated in the van, but I think they occurred on the street. I think they actually pummeled him so bad on the concrete that they already paralyzed him, and then they just left him in that state, and he was thrown throughout the vehicle. And so I, I, I think um, he ended up uh, experiencing that fatal, the fatal injuries. But he looked to me like he was limp long before they put him in the actual van. And um, in reference to the, um, the, the previous speaker who was talking about the white kids being racist, and it made me think of something um, that my wife had experienced before. Um, in Neely Stiller's book, he talks about um, white people who are senile or, I guess, mentally challenged, um, not being practitioners of racism, or he alludes to that in the book. But I've actually seen, and on multiple occasions, white people who were, had Down syndrome, who were um, mentally challenged, that practiced racism. They say racist things, they act, acted racist, and they knew what it was to be a white person. So um, I concluded that I don't care how old they are, if they're female, if they're white, they're white supremacists. That's my, that's my assessment just from life experience. And I don't care if they're mentally challenged, they're still white supremacists because I've seen them act that way. And then I also wanted to ask you, what did you think about uh, Bill Cosby fighting seven of his accusers um, as far as uh, taking them to court for defamation of character? I wanted to know if you heard about that and what you thought about it, Beth. Uh, I did see it. I think the Washington Post and a lot of the other mainstream outlets, they did uh, pick that up. Uh, you know, he's <laughs> doing, uh, I guess, doing the best he can uh, to try to defend himself. Uh, I'm more more curious to see how that you know plays out once they get to court, and even how white people respond over the next few uh, months, weeks, however long uh, this whole process goes. But uh, I, I suspect white people will just continue uh, their attack uh, against him. I don't think uh, if I won't even use the metaphor. I suspect white people. I'll just leave it there. I suspect white people are just going to continue their attack uh, against them and and keep it moving. I have to just pay attention to see how it proceeds uh, from this point. But I did see that earlier this week. May I be here? Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you. As far as Bill Cosby, I just throw in this. Um, this is like after Holt's cloth. You know, now they got to bring his case back up. I, I just think that has a lot to do with that. But um, oh, I, this is what I wanted to say about Serena Williams. You know, and you all mentioned it, you know, about the comparison to animals, and I think it was something about toilet, you know, oh, the person, about, you know, black people or niggers are just fleshing, you know, the country down the toilet or something like that. But I would say, like, this comparison to animals, and like you say, it, it's just always been. And I can remember reading um, something about Jesse Owens that when he came back from the Olympics, in what is it, like, whenever he went to the Olympics in Germany and pretty much showed Hitler up. And I was reading something that said how they even had him back here just things or having him racing horses and stuff. And I remember I was reading, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, this is what it is. So, you know, these comparisons, you know, you know, with animals, well, you know, we're the worst of the worst. So, you know, it just, as sad as it says, it's almost fitting for white people, you know, for them to do that. So as sad as it is, I'm, I'm just not shocked, you know, uh, with that comparison about, um, you know, Serena to, um, you know, animal. Uh, one of the callers said something about how 
white people in the dress up and they're talking about how white people are racist. It's, it's almost like these white people out here somewhere, but it's never us, you know, when we talk about this stuff. But, you know, those white people are racist. So I got that, too, you know. It makes it like, like a group of people out there. There's a group of white people out there that's racist, but, you know, we're not a part of that group, you know. But they are out there. And I'm just like, yeah, right. As far as white kids, they, remember you always say it, too, Gus. These are the ones, remember, you know, remember the saying, after you old people die out, you know, these young white kids, they're not like that. You know, they voted for President Obama, they cool, they down, they listen to rap. And when you old people die out, you know, everything's going to be fine. And basically, these, these young people almost literally make their parents look bad at the rate of racism that these young people can show. It's almost like they, they, their parents don't have nothing on their children. Because one thing, too, they've been taught very well by their parents. So, you know, I just think that as black people, you know, we have to wake up out of that foolishness, uh, you know, with this stuff. You know, you old people die out. Because, you know, I, I had a friend of mine tell me that. We were talking one time. She said, but that's you all. That, that's not like this. And her son is, um, he's going to be married this month, and he's marrying a white girl. You know, and um, she was telling me, she said, but that's you all. Young people, they're not like that, blah, 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 blah. So I just told her, I said, okay. I said, we'll see. We will see. I, I, can't, I can't force you to believe this, and, and, and I don't want to force you to believe it. You know, for, for many people, and particularly black people, when it comes to racial things, seeing is believing, and even then I think some of us act, you know, just like I don't see that. That's just an aberration. So like I told her, I said, well, we'll see. You know, I said, as we live. Uh, like, you know, it, its hand will show itself. So I just, I just wanted to say that. I'll meet myself. Thank you. Uh, the other folks who dialed in who had not shared yet, if you all had comments you wanted to make sure you got in before we get to workplace racism, you should do so now. Okay. Can I be heard? heard? Uh, let's get oh, the female go ahead first. right on. Uh, good evening, Gus, uh, and the callers and listeners. This is female caller from New York. I just wanted to chime in um on the caller who mentioned Bill Cosby. I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and his um, Bill and Camille Cosby's art collection is on display at the Smithsonian. If anybody gets a chance and at the end of the area, I highly recommend that you go see it. I'm very, uh, I was just really uh, felt very humbled and blessed to be able to see uh, such works of art. I mean, just amazing. Um, he has works of art from um, people who were, uh, former slaves, and they're painting in the style of European white people. Some of them are paintings of white people, and I guarantee you, if you used to see that on the wall somewhere, you would never think a black person had uh, uh, painted that. But, you know, he had Romare Bearden and um, Elizabeth Catlett, and the quilts, the quilts were amazing. But I just wanted to say that prior to the entrance of the exhibit, the uh, racist institution known as the Smithsonian has a disclaimer on a huge, um, what you would call an easel. Um, it's a, a, a big message letting you, letting you know that, you know, the deal that was struck uh, between um, Bill and Camille Cosby with regard to them securing their paintings for the exhibition came about long before the accusations against him. And they made it, they, they, the exact words were, we do not condone his behavior. So the Smithsonian has, you know, no one else, the Smithsonian and, you know, the rest, the rest of racist white America has uh, already tried and convicted Mr. Cosby um, because they said they don't condone his behavior. 
But the first thing that came to my mind was that there were no um, messages from any of the film, uh, anybody in the film industry about Woody Allen uh, when he uh, married, raped and married um, a non-white person um, who he had uh, first adopted, nor were there any messages about Mark Wahlberg after uh, he had uh, assaulted and uh, uh, beat up uh, an Asian person, you know, none of his racist antics. There were, there were no um, messages to let us know that um, they didn't condone their behavior. And uh, there was evidence, just evidence everywhere um, with regard to um, what he, um, they had done. So that was the first thing that um, I thought of. And that's all I had on mute my line. Other folks we haven't heard from yet, feel free. Yeah, I wanted to get in. That's okay. Proceed, sir. Yeah, I think the amazing part about all of these stories that, that you can kind of link together is white supremacy is, is so against justice, uh, so against common sense, logic, and it even defies physics when it comes to their stories or their explanations. So, Somebody can get their spine broken, and they'll blame it on that person. They'll have a sports person award of the year, and they'll say a horse should win it. Like All of this stuff, like it never makes any sense. Uh, it doesn't hold up to, to questioning ever. And uh, I guess another story from this week would be uh, another one from Missouri where they had that representative try to put uh, you know, a law on the books to where any student-athlete who would strike – uh, would immediately lose their scholarship after last year when those football players uh, boycotted. So <laughs> the ridiculous things they do, and then there's some of the things in which we don't learn uh, and the fact that we didn't immediately just leave and, and start going to other places. But you had that. Then you had all of these major cities are, are saying, you know, how funds are an issue. They don't want to pay teachers, firemen, you know, all this other stuff, how the funds are limited. And now St. Louis is going to build a billion-dollar football stadium to keep the Rams there. Uh, so all of these things that, that link up with white supremacy, white supremacy just show not only their dedication uh, to injustice, but just the idea that whatever they say should go, even if no, no matter what. And that 99 that, or 90-something uh, percent federal uh, conviction rate number Americans wouldn't 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 believe that for a second if that was from China or Russia. They would look at it with the you know the, the skepticism they should. But for here, most Americans hear that and think, "Oh, okay, well, there's a lot of guilty people." So yeah, that's all I got, man. So I'm gonna keep listening. Anybody we haven't heard from? Hello. Your volume is kind of low. If you could speak up, please. Hello. That's better. Okay. Uh, good evening to Gus and to the comments. Um, uh, I wanted to last thing I'm Your volume dropped again. Very hard to hear you. Oh, hello. Okay, we can hear you now. Is that better? Okay. I wanted to ask a young lady which of the Smithsonian museums the the exhibit is uh, showing, and also I think the disproportionate. Um, Hello? 
Okay. I think the disproportionate focus on Bill Cosby is because they're trying to destroy his legacy. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. I think they're trying to destroy his legacy. It's something that I um, also, that was also a quote by his uh, former uh, castmate, Felicia Rashad, um, be, uh, due to the success uh, wildly, you know, uh, the success of the Cosby show and the impact it had on America. So I, I really believe they're trying to just destroy that, that particular legacy. Thank you. And I wanted to ask the lady, young lady, where the uh, exhibit, uh, which museum is, it is. Thank you. It's in the African Art Museum. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, and another thing I thought of, unfortunately, I, I hope he gets his collection back. It pretty much is priceless. I really hope he gets it back. That's all I had. Uh, anything else? Folks want to make sure they get in. I, also, this week, the uh, the little uh, other little white urchin uh, that had was drunk driving and had killed, I think he killed four people. And they uh, affluenza was the term that they made up to not give him jail time. And now they can't. He's on the run. Uh, they're supposed to be trying to find him. I thought that was pretty significant from this week uh, as well. Another example of uh, white power and pathology. Uh, but anything else, folks wanted to make sure that they uh, got in before uh, we transition to workplace racism? Uh, yes, actually, I thought about that, too. I thought it was really fascinating because they said he went on the run after he um, someone took photographs of him at a party drinking. And one of his uh, one of the uh, rules of his probation was that he was not supposed to have any drinks whatsoever. So that's what triggered him going on the run, him and his mother, because his mother is his accomplice now. Um, so he can escape a uh, parole violation. The other thing I wanted to um, ask you too, they had an article um, talking about the upcoming, uh, well now they've allowed uh, Henry Louis Gates to, Dr. Gates to uh, start doing the program again, the Roots program, uh, finding a Roots program, and they found that Bill O'Reilly and Bill Maher are genetically related. They said they, they share an ancestor uh, 500 years back in Ireland somewhere. So I said, wow. Um, I think that uh, Bill, Bill Maher is the more refined racist in the family out of the two, but I just found that fascinating that those two uh, savage beasts um, were genetically related. That's it. Thank you. I did see that this week. I got a good chuckle out of that because <laughs> the, the whole white team uh, is related. Uh, that is literally and metaphorically. Uh, I don't see that much of a difference, uh, whereas I think a lot of people think of Bill O'Reilly as a race soldier, but they do not think of Bill Maher in the same way. Um, it was uh, it was one other one other segment I was going to make sure I get in, but slip my mom shop. I'll bring it up. Uh, time permits before we transition for up oh, workplace racism. Ready to roll. <laughs> the number to dial is six four one seven one five three six four zero, and the code again is five six four. Nine, four, three, pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Workplace racism. Uh, definitely interested in hearing folks uh, chime in. I was, I got a chuckle when I was listening to that uh, clip because I didn't even know it was going to be about racism. The clip that I played at the very beginning that was talking about office parties, and 
uh, decorum and how uh, it can end up being uh, litigious at the end of it, where people are making accusations that there was some inappropriate sexual behavior that went on or racist jokes and all that other stuff. I didn't even know that that was going to directly have something to do with racism. I was just listening to the whole broadcast and that popped up in the middle of it, but I was not surprised. I can only say that uh, in that they referenced uh, a TV program that is chock full of racism that I submit uh, you will miss most of the jokes that they're talking about in that program if you don't understand racism and even uh, the, the episode specifically that they were talking about where they have a office party, a Christmas office party. I think one of the jokes, kind of the big punchline jokes at the end uh, is that they're. Uh, there's a white guy. He's uh, selling these dolls, really popular Christmas toy to all of his coworkers. And uh, he's down to the last doll. White guy comes up, says, I want to buy it for my child. He price gouges him. He charges him like $400 for this doll. The white guy buys it. And then he looks at it and it's a black doll. And he thinks it's a white doll. And that's the, <laughs> they got him. And this is a guy uh, who they tease all the time. Incidentally, this guy, this white guy, white guy, they tease him all the time. He's like the lowest, uh, least powerful white person in the office. His name is Toby. And they tease him all the time, but he gets stuck with a black doll and he's all forlorn and depressed uh, about getting a black doll at the end of this episode that they referenced for the office party. But if folks have uh, workplace racism, if folks have any tales of, of office parties that they had to uh, participate and how you navigated that, that would be great to hear. Or just any other commentary, workplace racism, uh, feel free to chime in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, greetings. It's Ross again. Um, I just wanted to actually let you know, uh, Gus, that uh, recently I was uh, training with a black female on the job. She's old. She's an older sister, older than me. And um, I was helping her get settled into the position at the company and stuff. And I'd seen her before, and it was just a silent, uh, I would just call it a silent resonance, almost like when you come across people um, who have an understanding of racism, white supremacy, there's like a silent communication you sometimes have, and we kind of had that on a few occasions. So when I finally got to sit with her um, in training, we just started talking and um, started, uh, actually eventually found out that her husband um, was a student of Dr. Ben's as am I, and we just started kind of building about some of those things. And she's actually, I sent her information about the show, so hopefully she'll be listening, uh, starting to listen to the show. She actually read a couple of my essays that I wrote, that I write about racism and quite a few other things as well. And um, she was definitely intrigued by that. So I just wanted to let you know that I'm spreading the word. Um, and this, and she's really, really sharp, her and her husband both. So I'm really glad to let you know that um, there's someone else who I put onto your show, and I try to put on as many non-white people, black people, or non-white people um, that I've come across about your program. And um, also, funny enough, there's a white female on my job. She's originally from the Baltimore area, but she moved to Brooklyn. And over time, I found out that she uh, is married to a Kenyan male. And how they met was that she went over there on some so-called missionary work. I'm not religious, I don't believe, but kind of like, um, I guess, one of those outreach groups that go out there and um, supposedly help uh, the, the, the poor uh, Negroes in, in Kenya, and she met uh, the guy who she ended up marrying, and he ended up coming to the United States. 
and she had told me some information. I uh, just was asking questions about just how this all developed and stuff. And she said that um, eventually, uh, she went when she went over there, she met his relatives, and they did not. They were highly averted to him marrying her and moving to the United States with her. And over time, uh, she wore them down. And it just reminded me of uh, Henrietta Lacks and just the, the kind of uh, intense uh, tenacity of white people to try and break through any sort of resistance, whether it's in a psychological way or just brutalizing you and just running over you with a Mack truck. Um, but she just basically said over time that his family kind of accepted it and they, they treat her nicer. But it was something fascinating when, we, when the conversation got to where they live. They live um, in Crown Heights. And uh, she said that she, her grandmother was uh, racist, but she so, did not, was so-called not raised by racist parents. So she didn't come up in that sort of environment she called, which I don't believe, but this is what she claims. And um, eventually she started just talking, this rambling on, and I let her go. And she talked about walking through different areas of Brooklyn with her husband and the reaction that she gets um, sometimes from black people because Crown Heights is uh, heavily uh, Hasidic Jewish and also heavily uh, African-Caribbean and African. So there's uh, quite a few, quite a few uh, uh, English-speaking and uh, French-speaking African-Caribbeans and then uh, people directly from the continent that live in that area as well. And she said that um, there's, she said that she, she claims that she's not racist, but there's areas, and, and that she doesn't, she, matter of fact, she said she doesn't know anything, really know much about racism because she didn't come up in that sort of environment except for her racist grandmother. And I just found it fascinating that she knew of certain areas uh, surrounding her home, which she would never take her husband due to the fact that she knows those white people would probably kill him um, for being seen with her. And I just thought to myself, it was just so funny how she claims not to know anything about racism, but she certainly knows how white people behave in certain sections of Brooklyn, which her husband knows nothing about. So um, he probably would have gone to those areas not knowing that his life would have been in jeopardy. And then she had told a story about her husband going to a wedding of one of her relatives, a white relative, and um, it was in Boston, and he went up there before her. And I was just thinking to myself, like, this guy has no idea that he is just trusting a bunch of savages, and his life is probably in jeopardy every, at every turn, and he has no idea of what he could potentially be dealing with. So I'm just hoping at some point that maybe he was just uh, using her to become a citizen or something because I was just tripped out about the whole situation. But that was what I wanted to say about workplace racism. Uh, just the fact that these people are tenacious, they will do anything, and um, you just have to be very careful because they'll try and sink their claws in you. And once they do, it is one of the hardest things to separate yourself from. Uh, that's it. Thank you so much for uh, taking my call. Appreciate sharing the program. Thank you kindly. Hope it is worthy of her time and energy. And uh, I can can only uh, stress uh, it is always best to assume or shouldn't assume uh, you should function as though any white person that you're around, I wouldn't care if they're 10 or 110, uh, that that white person is more informed about racism than you are. They're white. They have been around lots and lots and lots of racists. Uh, they probably got a PhD in white supremacy uh, in comparison to you. Always best to function that way, in my opinion, at least that uh, can help keep you, uh, quote unquote, safe relatively under a system of white terrorism. Uh, other folks uh, have commentary they wanted to get in uh workplace racism feel free
to be heard. Uh, just you speak up a little bit, sir. You're a little low. Oh, we heard you, uh, sir. Just if you could speak up a little bit, that would be uh, that would be helpful. Your volume was a little low. Okay, can you can you hear me now? Yes, yes, sir. Much better. All right, thank you, sir. Uh, I just wanted to share a few things. Like that just reminded me of something when you said to be uh, careful about you know any white person that you happen to be around that you know they have a a lot of knowledge on the system. And I'm just picking up on different types of behavior patterns um, when I'm observing being on a job. Like I notice this phrase that'll be used. Like if I say something or uh, make some kind of a report of what happened to me, they will say, "Oh well." It's, but see, you got to remember, you know, it's, it's not. It, they weren't just doing that to you. They do that to other people as well, and. Even even if they say something that happens to them, you know, like this one lady, she's uh, being transferred for whatever reason it is to another building, and uh, you know, sometimes coworkers, I guess, tend to have that kind of storytelling gossip, which I try to keep away from. But she was mentioning that, and uh, I just basically said, you know, I, I can I guess understand what you mean, and you know, I get mistreated as well. So she had to say, oh, well, but see, the thing is, <laughs> when, when when that person looks at you, they're not just looking at you, they look at other people that way too. You know, but she didn't take that same stance when she was, you know, making a report about how she was being, I guess, mistreated or whatever. But I, I just know that that phrase being used by two different white people and there's this uh, other, well, younger white female who was having an issue, I guess, with parking on some kind of property, I guess, before she walks to work or whatever. And she was saying something about she's going to call, you know, uh, immigration or something because this person has a mail-to-order bride and all of that. And and the guy that she was talking to in the department, and... uh he, I think, yeah, well, he's a he's a non-white person, so um, he'll speak English and Spanish. So he was saying, well, you know, they might not get to that, you know, because the person has to be doing some kind of crime or, you know, have some kind of danger to society or whatever. And she says, well, you know what, I'm going to say he threatened me. You know, I'm going to say the person threatened me. And then she started smiling, you know, and then I looked over and I, and I seen the looks on their faces like, Wow, did she just say that? And I'm like, whoa. But see, that's something we should be expecting. So, you know, that, that classic, oh, he threatened me. So you can't you can't get the person in trouble any other kind of way unless the uh white woman is threatened. And the one one last thing was um uh the my supervisor, he tends to send out emails sometimes and uh this this recent one, the email said, no matter the situation, never let your emotions overpower your intelligence. And and I noticed like nobody nobody uh responds to these emails that seems to be a little more constructive, like it's not, you know, joking about anybody or whatever. 
So, you know, I asked him about it, and he just basically um, backed up what the meme or the caption said on the email. And, yeah, he was like, yeah, never let, never let your emotions overpower your intelligence. And he just, he said, you know what, I want you to read this book, and it's called Power Phrases, and, it's t- and it teaches you how to use words, how to how to say certain words without, I guess, making something seem bad or something. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, that's all I have for now. Power phrases. How interesting. A white that that in and of itself is intriguing to have a white person recommend a book about refining your use of <laughs> language. Like, wow. Has anybody heard of that book, Power Phrases? I'll take that as a no. Okay. <laughs> that might be uh something we can check out for the book club. I'm uh I'm checking it out now to see uh little bit more information but that is fat and, and I can I cannot emphasize that enough particularly the more uh, refined uh, the more powerful racists uh, the refinement and use of language extra I mean that's one of the principal tools I think mr. Fuller emphasizes that all the time in terms of how they uh, practice racism white supremacists how we end up with phrases like microaggressions uh, white privilege uh, intersectionality. I mean, you just pile them up and we start talking about uh, discrimination, prejudice. They just pile them up. Racial animus. That was a new one too. Uh, they will just pile up their little phrases and idioms and things uh, because they understand how to use words as weapons uh, in the practice of racism, white supremacy. But yeah, I'm definitely going to uh, check this text out uh, immediately. Power phrases. Oh, I think I got it right here. Power phrases. The perfect words to say, wait a minute, the power phrases, the perfect words to say it right and get the results you want. Marilyn yeah. Runyon, I think is how you say it. R-U-N-I-O-N. Merrill Runyon, is that it? Did you did you check this book out, sir? It was, it was just, uh, I think it was like yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday, so I put it on, like, I put it in my drawer. I haven't uh, started reading it yet. It was just like yesterday. So, I think it's like a blue book with like yellow text or something like that on the cover. Right. Yes, sir. So he said he read the whole book, you know, and he's saying like, there's, there's certain things you can say, you know, without getting people uh, to respond aggressively or whatnot. You know, so I was like, wow. He said, let me take a look at that book, you know. Yeah, he just handed me the book. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is, that's what I, in my opinion, that's what I mean. Uh, when you're around white people, you should assume that they know more about racism, white supremacy. In, anytime, this is just me. This is something that I noted uh, years ago, just the importance of language and really paying attention that I noted that many of the white people that had a high level of skill with language were pretty high up there in terms of uh, my view, in terms of their understanding, ability to practice racism, white supremacy. I think Dr. Martin Kevorkian, we've had him on the program many, many times, his book, Color Monitors, he has a PhD in English. I think a lot of times when we have white people on the program, if they have uh, like a doctorate in English uh, or they, they write particularly or they're a journalist where their profession requires them to have a high level of refinement with words, I 
pay a special uh, attention to them because uh, that is intricately uh, related to the system of white supremacy. But I'm definitely going to try to uh, get my hands on this book. If I nab it, I will share uh, Merrill Runyon power phrases. <laughs> Folks should definitely uh, give that a glance over in my view. Hello. Uh, we can hear you, sir. Just uh, speak up a little bit. Okay, um, that that book that he just mentioned it, it reminded me of a, a book by William Lux called Double Speak, where he breaks down how they use language to say things and not say things at the same time, or have double meanings inside of the speech. It's, English is a very uh, confusing language. That's all I gotta say. He was a guest on the program, 2010. Uh, Oh, I think I have uh, put my this. It looks like this white woman uh, has written quite a few books on words. Looks like she has another one that is how to use power phrases to say what you mean, mean what you say and get what you want uh, is another book that she has in addition to the power phrases. But it looks like I have put my hand on this one. Uh, I will I will share if other folks want to check it out. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. So since we're talking about workplace racism or white violence, let's talk about, I want to talk about the economic implications of white supremacy on black folks. So I work in a restaurant as a server where most of my customers are white and I've observed white supremacy in its raw form. And I've noticed that my co-workers who are all white being tipped more by white, by white and non-white customers. My boss even points out that it's more economic quote, economically friendly to hire white servers because white people feel more comfortable. Um, I think this goes back to, like, integration and how, you know, we need to start as black people. We need, for liberation, we need to start thinking about perhaps separating ourselves from these violent spaces, either creating a workplace environment that is more pro-black. So that's just my opinion. Wow, that is uh, not that I'm surprised about the uh, the tipping and even your boss saying that to you. Uh, the boss said, you know, it's it's uh, it is a in terms of economics, it's a better decision to hire more white servers because white people are more comfortable. Uh, that I mean is is totally logical. I'm not surprised. I'm surprised that he would say that explicitly to you. Um, that is. Uh, that is quite revealing. In fact, I've, I've said this before. There's a whole chapter uh, book that has a lot of great information about racism and specifically work, uh, workplace racism with regards to the food industry. Um, two faced racism. Uh, Joe Fagan, Dr. Joe Fagan. Uh, well, actually, he's an admitted racist. Uh, he has a whole chapter in the book that's just on uh, racism in the food service industry. And he talks about all the different manifestations in terms of how black customers are treated and how white workers, whether it's the servers or managers or whoever it is, they have all these elaborate codes for how they talk about black people and how they practice uh, racism against the other black people. I don't think he touched on as much in terms of how black workers in that environment are impacted, but uh, I, I mean, it's it's logic to me. That's just one. I won't even give the metaphor. It's it's total logic of this system that uh, black server would not be tipped uh, as much by both racists and victims of racism. I think the the big report that came out earlier this year about I think it was in North Carolina. They had a basketball tournament and there was a big surcharge for black people and they were saying that black people don't tip or whatever. And they brought that whole nonsense uh, up again. Black people don't tip and blah blah blah. And uh, some of the black people were saying that they try to to show white people that they they tip a lot when they go out. 
uh, to try to show them that we're humans and, and worthy of, of correct treatment and, and them to, to not practice racism against us is just not, in my opinion, not understanding uh, the reality of what we're dealing with. But that is, uh, wow, that sounds like a really toxic environment. Like, you had, what's, what's your experience been like working in that environment with all these white folks? Well, I, I would call it a very violent space. Um, my boss is actually non-white. But uh, and he understands like implication of white supremacy, but he's also interested in making money. So, but at the same time, um, like I mentioned, I think that integration, like the fact that black servers or black workers feel like they have to work in white spaces, I think that we should be always be critical of that. I'm trying to move myself out of that white environment and perhaps look for a more pro-black space because I think those because uh, I think those spaces become very traumatic. Um, at the same time, I also wanted to talk about, like, we focus a lot about um, black trauma, but I think we should also focus on the black, uh, white uh, psych, which is very aggressive, very colonial-based. Um, my experience working in the restaurant industry, I see that a lot of them are very, very, very condescending, um, and the way that they treat non-white servers is completely different from the way they treat white servers. So I think that they're always practicing that dominance in those spaces. So I think it is very traumatic for non-white workers when they're working within those spaces. What differences have you noted? In how, wow, I'm getting, I don't know if somebody's on speakerphone or if you're, uh, maybe they're just moving, shifting with the phone. Um, have you noticed the difference in terms of how you're treated as opposed to how the other, your white peers, your white colleagues, how they're treated? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Basically, they are kind of asked where me and my, well, I have another, well, the boss's wife, she's not white, so she works as well as a server, and we're demanded, and, well, our coworkers are asked. Um, I think that's a big difference. Another thing is my, uh, my boss's wife is, well, basically, she's the owner, too, as well, but she's not treated as the owner by the white customers. They assume that the white servers are perhaps the managers or the owners. So they do talk down to her even when they do find out she's the owner or they report a complaint or they do something to sabotage their uh, business. So that is something that we see. It's a very white dominant area. So it's something that we always have to be cautious about. But definitely, yeah, it is, it is a very traumatic place to work. <laughs> It's very good because our our boss, like our boss, is very understanding of white supremacy. So you are able to talk to him about that, especially because he is a non-white person. But at the end of the day, we have to deal with these kind of customers every day. Wow, man! I'm sure folks can uh, relate. We've had people share uh, similar experiences, particularly people that work in the food service industry who have to deal uh, with that sort of thing. I think uh, it was a non-white female. She had called in before and it was it was a uh, same type of environment, even though it was white people who owned the actual establishment. But it was mostly white people who worked there and mostly white uh, clientele. Uh, and she said it was, I guess, one day a group of uh, black people came in uh, to eat. And the servers were overheard. I think they said, uh, oh, there's a, a dark cloud uh, in that quadrant uh, of the uh, of the 
facility or what have you. And all the white people picked up on it immediately. <laughs> and the non-white person, she didn't know what they were talking. She had to inquire to kind of dig to be like, oh, they're making some sort of racist comment about uh, the black people in this section and they don't want to serve them. Uh, that was the, it took a while for her to, to do, you know, figure out what was being said. Uh, that's why I said white people, they have a very intricate code uh, of how they are going to terrorize and practice white supremacy in that uh, environment that I did not know until way down the road, which would just be another reason for us not to be eating out in these establishments. I try to say that as often as I can. Like that's one thing we can do really minimize uh, going out to eat and that sort of thing. Cause I mean, wow, you are really, uh, you are just inviting all sorts of uh, violence, trauma, white people to do anything they want to your food, beverages, whatever, or your bill. Even I think it's been I can't even remember the number of times that we've had uh, different clips and, and reports where a non-white person went out to eat and they wrote uh, nigger on the tip or something else racist uh, in reference to black people. And I mean, that's just the times they get reported. So who knows how frequent this sort of thing uh, has happened? I would suspect this is everyday, all day activity worldwide. Um, did folks have comment on what, what we heard on, on this incident of workplace racism or other things they wanted to make sure they share? just get in really quick uh, before somebody goes that would be at least in my view that would be another illustration of what I've said consistently even because I hear people say as though this is the cure-all uh, if black people are entrepreneurs and you get your own business uh, they talk as though that that will somehow exclude you from racism in the workplace that is not true <laughs> it will just change the form that you have to deal with it it's still going to be a problem probably one of the bigger problems that you face uh, as a black business person, uh, it's not going to be, it's not going to disappear. The white supremacy is just going to take a different form in terms of how you're having to deal with it uh, as a business owner. Uh, Gus, you know, that made me think of there was an episode you had a few years back um, called White People Can Ruin Your Life in Less Than 10 Minutes. It kind of made me think of that. Um, I would just say it's, it seems like the food industry is like, a very psychologically violent place, and if not psychologically, it can become physically violent um, just because of the way that they codify their language in reference to black people. Um, just the stories of how uh, how uh, restaurant workers can codify their language so that even the chef understands he's cooking for a non-white person and he'll spit in their food or violate their food in some way before preparing it for, during pre preparation of the food. Um, it just really, really made me think of that that particular episode. Just as sadly, that episode ended violently um, in regards to what that woman experienced. But I just wanted to chime in with that. Oh, and I wanted to ask you too, a reference to books that white people write with, as far as language. Have you ever heard of a book called uh, "Never Be Lied To Again" by David Lieberman? Uh, yes, sir. I think uh, Dr. Khalif Muhammad. He was on the program uh, 2012. I'm a victim, so my memory might be off, but I'm pretty sure it was 2012. Uh, we talked about uh, that book. I think Verbal Judo, and this was before we had actually read uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But we kind of put all those books together. Uh, it's just some general skills that folks can uh, take forward. But yes, I have uh, heard of that book. I've read that book actually. It's it's pretty solid. Yeah, I was going to say, I think maybe at some point we should review that for the um, book club simply because it does give great information on how to use words to actually get, play, basically play mental chess to get information that you might need. And I think that'll be essential for non-white people while navigating the system of white supremacy, especially on the job or even in restaurants and all these other sorts of situations in which 
we can use words as weapons to really get what we need accomplished, um, you know, out in the world. Thank you. Also, yeah. one, oh, I'm sorry, uh, ma'am. I just want to say really quick before you share that uh, if we have any black entrepreneurs, if you're a business owner, um, it would be grand to share how you are experiencing racism, white supremacy as a non-white business owner uh, within the system of, of white terrorism, because uh, I, I just can't emphasize that enough. You're not going to get out of racism just by going into business for yourself, quote unquote. That is not going to excuse you. Uh, from this problem, it will just change how you're dealing with it. So if we have uh, black people who are in business for themselves and you have your own experiences with how you're experiencing uh, dealing with racism, uh, how it's uh, confronting you as a problem, that would be great to, to hear as well. Uh, the female caller, please proceed. Speaking of food, um, does anyone eat? Your volume is a little low. Your volume's a little low. Speak up, please. Okay. Is that better? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Speaking of food, does anyone eat any uh, snacks or food that whites might bring into work? Um, I know at my workplace, you know, there's always cupcakes or cookies or donuts that are set out. Um, and my my office is mostly white, so I, I purposely do not uh, eat any of their food that they bring in. So I was just wondering what other people, you know, at their work site, if, if they partake in that. Good question. Thanks. I could say where I work, um, they actually like pay for lunch three times out of the week. So um, they actually order from like these gourmet places and whatnot. So um, they really don't know who they're delivering to. It's just basically like a corporate account kind of scenario. So that I have utilized. As far as food on the job, no, I don't really mess with that um, at all because you don't know what the what white people are doing with the food. Um, so, yeah, definitely, I, I agree with you. Um, and on my job, too, they also have liquor. I don't touch it. They have uh, beer um, all the time and, and stuff like that, and I don't partake of that as well. And I let people know in the, in the company that I don't drink it all just so I, there's no discrepancy with that in me. Oh, yeah, Gus, I did have a story about a, a black entrepreneur. So actually a friend of mine who told me what changes he had to make in order, in order not to deal, or to deal with less racism while uh, performing his job. He actually um, owns a photo studio in Brooklyn, New York. And um, his, uh, his name, he had to change his name because uh, his last name was Gonzalez, and he actually used the term, like, the name Guns, which was a shortened version of the name Gonzalez. He's... Um, He's a black male, uh, and he's of Aruban roots, and he had extremely long dreadlocks. And he said, he told me just stories upon stories about uh, how white people, and uh, specifically uh, so-called semi-Jewish religion, I call them white people, but um, how they would mistreat him just based on him having dreadlocks. He's also a very uh, big, muscular guy. He comes from a robust family as far as just the males being very, very muscular and, um, and tall. So he just explained, like, they would be very uh, very averted to his physical appearance and then also his name. So he changed his name 
uh, to something that was less offensive. So it's now a door, which sounds much more less, much less offensive. And then he ended up cutting his locks off, and he said that the treatment was like a 180, just based on how people people reacted to him uh, once he changed his physical appearance. So you're absolutely right. Being an entrepreneur does not mean that you will escape racism. I just think it gives you much more autonomy as far as not having to uh, deal with the daily abuse of uh, mistreatment regarding scheduling and things like that. But as far as just dealing with the society, you're going to get it all day and twice on Sunday. Thank you. Did any, uh, definitely appreciate that. Thank you kindly. Um, did anybody else, I just want to make sure if anyone else wanted to respond to the question on the table about if people, uh, how you deal with food in the workplace, uh, if white people have brought it or they prepared it at home or picked up whatever and brought it in for people to eat. Anybody else want to respond to that question? Did I, I thought I heard someone. Did I hear someone? Maybe they were talking. Wow. Nobody else has to deal with white people bringing food in the workplace. That is fascinating. Well, I had a job where, um, in particular, this white male would always bring in food and leave it in the pantry area that I had to clean. And it used to, you know, kind of piss me off. But um, I would never eat it based off of, First, I ain't eating. Well, I can't say I don't eat my life because I have brought out to eat. But I mean, I don't know. I've been to some like white people's houses, and their houses aren't exactly um, what I think is eat worthy. I don't know if you mean they got a lot of pets and things, and their interaction with pets isn't like black people's interaction with pets. And I just don't trust them. And um, but yeah, I've, I've dealt with that from that angle where he would put it in a play with someone. And then I've had jobs where you'll have, like I would have to maybe deliver something to someone's desk or to there, and they would always have, you know, cookies out or, you know, um, cupcakes they made. I mean, always, every day. And, you know, I would always take one with me so I could be nice. And, you know, when I got away from them, I'd throw it in the garbage. But, um, yeah, I, I don't and they they cook in their houses because I get to go to one's house unless they had a maid that was clean. In my opinion. Right on. I would even say be caught like if it's uh, so I think people have already given, you know, great uh, views on uh, white people that they're preparing food you definitely don't want to be eating something that came from racist kitchen uh but i would even say even if they go out and get something from a grocery store another establishment and they bring it in if it's like uh, a box i think donuts are pretty popular or bagels or those type of things where it's it's a container of something and they just leave it in a kind of common area where a lot of people have access so they can kind of come in if it's a break area or kitchen area or whatever the case may be uh, and so people can just kind of come in and, and pick and get what they want. I would even be leery of that uh, because you just have a lot of racists touching things and, and that can kind of go all over the place, too. I would be extreme, particularly now, because I just in general, even if the racist factor wasn't there, I don't like getting sick. Uh, and that's, you know, this time of year, I try to avoid that, too. But when you add the racism element on top of it, that would be something else I would 
uh, discourage uh, because we are not in an environment where people function in a communal manner. And I know from my own workplace experience, not even talking about communal food, just my own individual food. Uh, I had huge problems and I have to suspect white people because uh, the environment where it happened, it was mostly whites. Uh, where people were stealing my food out of the refrigerator, even little food that I had in my office. I used to have a little candy dish and they came and took the whole candy dish. Um, I would not trust uh, whites to do right uh, with anything that's supposed to be food, communal, anything. But specifically, we're talking about food. I just would not trust them to uh, do the correct thing. So I would even discourage that if they leave donuts or cupcakes, as Thomas said. I'm good. Or if you got to be codified, as he said, grab one and then discreetly get it in the trash can as soon as possible. Folks have anything else they want to make sure they got in uh, workplace racism? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I was a black server that started talking about um, the workplace um, violence, but I also wanted to talk about another job that I have. I also work part time as a researcher working to like obtain a degree in African studies. So I have a white professor that I work with uh, that I also had a class with. Um, and the white professor refuses to word, to use the word black when referring to Africa in a desire to colorblind the experience of uh, African black people. And I think that's uh, really important. This is also sometimes when you're working in academia, um, you experience these forms of uh, violence, subtle violence of white supremacy, where white professors try to... that are engaging in some type of black studies, whether it's Caribbean studies, where, whether it's black studies in general, uh, or African studies, where they try to um, rewrite history. And I think that's also a form of um, workplace violence because you have to research with these, uh, with these people and um, you end up getting into this space where, again, it becomes tra traumatic. Um, they try to, again, I've worked with a lot of uh, white researchers that also feel like they have that white savior complex, another form of white supremacy where they're talking about Africa and you're always having to debate with them about this. I think it's like, I think it's more subtle in the academia workplace, but it's still there. And I just wanted to talk about that as well. What term do they use if they don't want to use the term black? Um, they will use, they will try to deal more with ethnicity, so they'll be like, oh, Congolese people, Nigerian people, or Ethiopian people, or some type of other term to avoid black studies. So they'll try to avoid a black analysis. They'll try to, I don't, in my opinion, I don't think white people should be studying African studies, period, anyway. But when it does happen, and they are in these spaces, they try to, I guess, take race out of the conversation, because they don't want to have a structural analysis on blackness in Africa and what blackness means in connection to Africa. Um, they don't want to talk about the black diaspora. They want, they don't want to talk about the African diaspora. I think that's something that's really traumatic in the black, uh, the, when you're a black academia working with uh, white researchers, you always have to kind of debate the existence of race, racism and white supremacy. So especially like when you're talking about like international uh, relations and, um, a global white supremacy, you also have to, again, debate these conversations. And it's very dramatic because we are in a space that we're analyzing African studies. Well, we are researching African studies, so I don't think we have to have these conversations about whether white supremacy exists, but we still have to have these debates with quote-unquote white co-workers or white professors. 
answers. But I think it, that's something else I wanted to add where we talk about more subtle forms of white violence in the workplace, where they use double speaking when they do speak on these issues. Being deceptive with words that might even be power phrases. <laughs> um, uh, another ex- illustration, as I said, that's their primary weapon, uh, the way that they use words uh, to obfuscate and move away from the truth of the matter and particularly uh we're in a university setting i've said that before anything where it's you're supposed to be talking directly about racism which sounds like the discipline that you just mentioned uh it it gets i mean it's really extreme uh in those settings because they really go hard to make sure that we're not going to have accurate direct dialogue about racism white supremacy which would be the foundation of what we're supposed to be talking about anyway and i mean you see it big time and uh it's been my experience those white people very very informed very dangerous race soldiers the folks that are doing that work uh studying the continent or, or just studying uh, non-white people in general, wherever they might happen to be in the world, very informed uh, and very skilled at the way that they practice white supremacy within their discipline. Uh, with that, we did our three. Uh, we should be here uh, tomorrow. It's our once a month early broadcast. We should be here uh, early, uh, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, we should have some folks uh, outside the states. And again, encourage folks. I know uh, we have people who listen in. They just listen to the archives because they can't participate during the live uh, program. Uh, so if you are available Sunday early, uh, chime in. Uh, it's not the uh, long program. Generally do about an hour. Something really important comes up. We'll spend a little bit more time. But looking forward to hearing from some uh, of the folks that are outside the states as to how things have progressed since we last heard from some of them about the situation in France and just general observations on racism, white supremacy. But that should be uh, tomorrow. Uh, I think Monday we should be here, Wilmington on Fire, uh, the documentary that we were talking about a few weeks before, Black Male, Mr. Chris Everett. Uh, put together about uh, white terrorism in uh, North Carolina, uh, end of the 19th century. It should be closely related to uh, Ben Tillman. Uh, we spent a good bit of time talking about him. That's right uh, next door in South Carolina, but that should be Monday. Uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing from him on the program. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching the documentary myself. That can be another one. I can uh, recommend Wilmington on Fire, uh, folks looking for documentaries on racism white supremacy uh big thanks to all the folks who chimed in i hope it was a constructive uh investment of your saturday evening and i look forward to being right back in about 12 hours uh i would again encourage this time of year i know they reported here in washington state i you know would suspect it's going to be the same uh across the country uh increased numbers of race soldiers out in full force uh because so much of the alcohol and all that is encouraged this time of year just do everything you can to uh, keep yourself as safe as possible uh, i say consistently sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism uh particularly if you're going to be behind the wheel and that's whether you're driving whether you are a passenger even a pedestrian uh you never know when it's going to be a daniel holtzclaw or darren wilson uh who ends up being the person that's stopping you and harassing you and what have you uh, it's just trying to do everything that we can uh to 
minimize uh, conflict, uh, minimize problems, uh, keep them from taking up your time and energy and maybe even taking your life uh, and so that you can protect other people that you might be responsible for. Just making sure we're clear, lucid, can make the best possible uh, decisions uh, within a terrible predicament. Uh, also want to encourage buckle up every time. Say that all the time. Uh, that's something minimum that we can do. <laughs> buckle up. Uh, just doing everything that we can to minimize contact. Uh, don't give them an excuse uh, to have to pull you over or ask any questions or what have you. Uh, with that, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll be back in 12 hours. Uh, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.